In the summer of 1693, the philosopher Johannes Kelpius and a small band of followers fled their Rhine Valley homeland. The region had once been a sanctuary of political independence and esoteric spirituality. It was now a charred land of devastation, crushed by the papal Habsburg Empire during the Thirty Years' War. The 21-year-old Kelpius, a protege of mystical scholars who survived in the Rhine Corridor, led his German pilgrims to the New World. Fewer than 40 in number, they first traveled over land and later endured a five-month sea voyage, which proved less dangerous for the weather than for warring French and British ships crisscrossing Atlantic routes. By late June of 1694, the group reached Philadelphia, then a cluster of about 500 houses. They settled along the wooden banks of the Wissahickon Creek outside town. There they lived a monastic existence, occupying caves and constructing a 40-foot square log tabernacle topped with a telescope from which they scanned the stars for holy signs. By sunlight and hearth fire, they studied astrology, alchemy, number symbolism, esoteric Christianity, Kabbalah, and other philosophies that had once flowered back home. Newcomers journeyed to America to join their tabernacle in the forest, and in the years following Kelpius's death from tuberculosis in 1708, they created a larger commune at Ephrata, Pennsylvania. News drifted back to the old world. A land existed where mystical thinkers and mysterious religions, remnants of esoteric movements that had thrived during the Renaissance and were later harassed, could find safe harbor. And so began a revolution in religious life that was eventually felt around the earth. America hosted a remarkable assortment of breakaway faiths from Mormonism to Seventh-day Adventism to Christian science. But one movement that grew within its borders came to wield radical influence over 19th and 20th century spirituality. It encompassed a wide array of mystical philosophies and mythical lore, particularly the belief in an unseen world whose forces act upon us and through us. It is called the occult. The teachers and purveyors of the American occult, colorful, audacious, and often deep, self-educated men and women, shattered every stereotype, real and imagined, of the power-mad dabbler in dark arts. Rather than seeing mystical or magical ideas as a means to narcissistic power or moral freedom, they emphasized an unlikely ethic of social progress and individual betterment. These religious radicals, acting outside the folds of traditional churches and mostly overlooked or ignored in the pages of history, transformed a young nation into the launching pad for the revolution in therapeutic and alternative spirituality that swept the earth in the 19th and 20th centuries, even reigniting mystical traditions in the East. my ghosties, my ghoulies, and my moth people. Welcome to Noctivigant, the show about the strange, paranormal, otherworldly, and the people who write books about it. My name is Rory, and I am joined by the true American duo, Jay and Nick. That shouldn't make me feel as attacked as it does. Aw, <laughs> I was trying to make it out, you know, whatever. And on this show, <laughs> we're going to discuss, dissect, and review the best 
and worst in the world of paranormal and conspiracy literature. So settle in, buckle up, and prepare for a walk on the midnight roads of Noctivigant. What's up, guys? Uh, nothing much. I'm super excited to record this episode. Yeah, no, uh, pretty much. I mean, I uh, I just got done doing some yard work. I have uh, beaten a couple weed plants to death that have been challenging my authority. So it's a good day. Things are turning up, Nick. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I pretty much spent my entire day working on this, being getting ready to uh, do exactly what we're doing right now. So, you know, I'm ready to get it over with after... About eight hours of writing, because I started at about 8.30 in the morning, and I stopped at about 4.30 in the afternoon with about a 20-minute break. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I kind of got that picture, because every time I looked out at you where you were working, I could see you kind of sinking lower and lower into your chair as the day went on, and you fist-fought this book into submission. Yeah, this was far and away the hardest summary I've ever had to write. Um I so background. I'm not a writer, <laughs> uh, as we know. Uh, I do my best, um, but I haven't had to write uh, before the show. I haven't had to write anything that resembles a, a, a book report or anything like that since um, high school. And I didn't do most of them in high school. I remember. So like, um, yeah, this, this. So doing a covering a choosing, letting myself be the one to do this. Uh, was interesting. It was a challenge for sure. Oh, isn't that the point of living? Yeah. Well, that's why I did it. Uh, I may never do it again. <laughs> so speaking of which, what book are we covering today, Rory? We are covering, hold on. I've got it right here. Occult America by Mitch Horowitz. And this one is actually the first ever book request, so to speak, from one of our listeners. Yep, that's right. Uh, we're not going to say their last name for the sake of privacy, but Catherine, uh, thank you for the recommendation. We really enjoyed the book. Yeah, it was great. Uh, I, I like uh, regardless of what I said previous, I enjoyed the book. It it was very interesting, um, and it's very well researched and very well read. I'm just uh, I just you know I struggle at writing book reports about history, uh, history heavy texts. I... And it is a history heavy text, definitely. I listened to the Ouija chapter twice, actually. Oh, that's sad, because I cut that. <laughs> but that's the one I listened to twice! <laughs> I'm sorry. Oh, <sighs> oh, your misery fuels me. Why? I don't know. I'm a sadist. Yeah, I mean, a little bit. Misery, but I'm really any emotion fuels you, just some more than others, right? Yeah. Yeah, that's what I told you. Yeah. <laughs> oh. <laughs> I see. Okay, I see what you did there. Nick, yeah. if we were friends in high school, would you have shot me with a blowgun? Yes. Oh, God, yeah. That Aww. was just what I did to my friends in high school. And to be fair, I didn't shoot them with a blowgun as often as I expertly didn't shoot them with a blowgun by reenacting Indiana Jones and making the darts appear just an inch behind their head as they ran away from me. That is, in, that is incredibly accurate, actually. I was a goddamn surgeon with that thing. I don't know how you pulled it off half the time. 
And now I'm just picturing what my father would have done to you if I came home with a wound from a blowgun. Oh, you would have been fine. You probably wouldn't even say anything. It's just a little tiny hole. I gave Matt an infection in his spine. So on that note, what'd you guys think of the book? <laughs> uh, I really enjoyed it. I It was very in-depth. Uh, it did a great job of kind of unveiling the secret, uh, I guess, influence the occult has had on uh, American history. And I, I also got to say, it, uh, it did a great job of illuminating a difference that had never been made, I guess, as clear to me, which is how different American occultism was from European occultism and, mm-hmm. and kind of what the American uh, what happened to the occult once it was exposed to the American spirit. Yeah. And, you know, I, I really did. I wanted to put in a question specifically talking about the differences between European occultism and American occultism for us to talk about. I didn't really find a good uh, a good spot that I could squeeze that in. So let's talk about it right now real quick. Just briefly, keep keep it brief. Um in a, in a nutshell, what are your what, what do you think the biggest differences are between the two? Like I I could tell I mean I I know what some of the most prominent differences are. We all those of us that read this can definitely say that. But what do you what are the biggest differences to you? And why do you think it is that American occultism was so different? Honestly, I I think what it comes down to is uh, in Europe, you had the mystery cults, you had the magical orders, you got uh, Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn, you had Crowley, uh, Crowley's Thelema, and they were all very, again, they were very insular. They were all about hiding their secrets and bringing people kind of in and slowly indoctrinating and cutting them away from the outside world. Uh, but then it got to America and it was, well, maybe magic shouldn't belong to the elites. Maybe everyone should be doing magic. And hey, maybe there shouldn't be rules to how you do the magic. You know what? Make it up and magic will happen. And I love that. Yeah. No, I, I think that's what it magic should always be. Like like most things, uh, America took this ancient, venerated tradition and we just said we're going to take it apart and do whatever the fuck we want with it. And uh, things worked out. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is the history of the 20th century. And, Thank and, you all for listening to our show. Have a good night. And you know, you said something there. You said, and it worked out. And you know what? That remains to be seen. Okay, fair. F- fair and heartbreaking. Yeah, but it's true. Jay. I, I mean, I think, uh, I think the biggest difference is, is still is the fact that Americans seem very vested in the idea of the occult having a practical measurable effect on their real on like their real lives of like Europeans seem to have hung on to the idea of you study the occult for the sake of studying it or like with the with the mystery cults that that came out of like uh, Hellenetic culture like Grecian culture Mm -hmm. there was the idea of you study this for a long-term reward in the afterlife. It has nothing to do necessarily with what you're doing here on Earth, except for maybe political power within the organization. Americans are like, I'm doing this to lose weight. I'm doing this to get a husband. I'm doing this to get rid of my debt. And it's like... Yeah, the 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 immediate satisfaction, the immediate reward. That that is that's definitely one of the things that I noticed too. Like a lot of what American uh, what sprouted from the ideas of American occultism is this, how can I get what I want now and what do I need to do to uh, 
to, or, or like what changes am I making or what is my goal? And it's always, it, it's so much of it became materialistic. Well, and it, it comes down to, uh, so you look at a lot of, of the older occult traditions, right? What are they ultimately about? Like uh, Jay was saying there, they're about changing the self. Mm-hmm. And often enough, yes, that's done internally, but it's also done by adjusting your external circumstances. Uh, America, we, it kind of flipped the script. It was saying, I'm going to adjust my internal circumstances in order to manifest those changes into the outside world. Right. Yeah. Uh, the power of positive thinking. Yeah. And we will definitely be talking about that specifically a little bit later. Yeah. On. I think I think Mr. Horowitz uh, brought that brought up that specific book like six or seven times in, the, mm-hmm. in this text. Spalding got most of a chapter to himself with that nonsense. Yeah, there's uh there's a reason. I I, I, I there's a reason for all that in my opinion. But we're gonna get into all that. And how about we do just that and start? Yes. Into the summary. I suppose I can shut up. Yeah, I, I like that. We, t- we touched on a little bit of that. It was good. But now we're going to get going. It's been a while since we've looked at the occult. Sure. We've read about magic, aliens, ghosts, and all the usual suspects of the paranormal. And in all of these, the occult seems to pop up, either as a framing device for theories spun by our investigators and researchers or as a history lesson to explain how we got here. This time, we're going to look at the history of the occult, similar to our journey into the secret teachers of the Western world, but this time, we focus specifically on American occultism through the lens of Mitch Horowitz's Occult America. And the story we will attempt to tell today on Noctivigant is of the people who influenced the separation from European occultism, going from the male-dominated secret societies to the marriage of arcane ideas and self-improvement philosophies. And as always, we will stop along the way to discuss how it intersects with our thoughts in the modern day. And we will begin this tale by telling the story of Mother Anne, in a place known as the Burned Over District. It was 18th century England. A woman by the name of Anne Lee was hounded, beaten, and jailed for her claimed visions of prophecies. In 1774, she and her eight followers one of these followers being her unfaithful husband, fled to New York. This being the 18th century, the voyage was everything but fun. Sailing at this time was not a Royal Caribbean cruise. It was hard work, terrible food, and hoping that nothing terrible would happen along the way. Naturally, a terrible storm threatened to sink them one night, but Anne, steadfast in her faith and need to survive, reportedly stayed calm, citing that no danger would come to them as she saw two angels of God hovering over the masts. They did survive, and when they arrived in New York, they worked until they had enough money to form a colony in the marshy fields near Albany in the Hudson Valley. The land was... shit. There's really no better term for it. It was swampy and icy in the winter, and worse yet, the neighbors around them spread rumors that they were British sympathizers and spies. Revolutionary authorities even briefly jailed Anne on charges of sedition. American neighbors making shit up? Shocking. I, I, I just love the idea of someone getting a like a, an arrest warrant for someone named Mother Anne. <laughs> it's, like, it's like going after Mother Goose. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but Mother Anne continued on her journey. During a missionary trip to Petersham, Massachusetts, Anne was seized by a mob and forced to disrobe to determine if she was a British spy in drag. Wild. Wild. (laughs) 
She was constantly accused of witchcraft and heresy, often replying to these claims with, quote, there is no witchcraft but sin. Yet her following grew. Bit by bit, people came to join their group, most disillusioned with the more popular Baptist churches in the area, others because of weird events that seemed to be happening all around them. On May 19, 1780, many in New England experienced the dark day. The daytime skies mysteriously blackened out entirely, causing intense panic. These apocalyptic fears drove converts to Mother Anne. Mother Anne died in 1784, but her influence was still felt. In the late 1830s, the Shakers engaged in what they called, quote, Mother Anne's work. They believed she was working as a spirit guide to direct supernatural occurrences. And at this point, the Shakers were much wider spread. They had colonies spread out as far south as Kentucky. Most Shaker villages during this time reported visits from the spirits of historical figures and ancient natives. They turned these visits into songs and paintings. Villagers broke out in tongues and ecstatic writhing. They foretold of a coming day when the other world would visit upon every town and doorway in the country. The Shakers set the tone for what would become occultism in America. The 21st century historian Carl Carmer called the Hudson Valley area quote, a broad psychic highway, a thoroughfare of the occult. The area ran rampant with traveling preachers, revivals, and other expressions of ecstatic religiosity. Quote, the burned-over district's early religious communities thrived on a steady pool of migrants drawn to the religious abundant land. This new breed of Yankees streaming westward from New England was spiritually curious, ready to listen and believe. In the starlit nights of pioneer life, many minds and hearts turned to the whispers of the cosmos and the mysteries of what might be. This growing American occultism saw European Christianity as lacking the mystery and mysticism of the world they wanted to re-inject into their world. Towards that end, one woman from New England introduced a dramatically new idea of what a divine messenger could be. She was the first American woman to found a spiritual order. Her name was Jemima Wilkinson. Born in 1752, Wilkinson lost her mother at age 12 and was raised by her sisters. She was well-educated due to her family's modest wealth and soon became wrapped up in the Rhode Island religious revival. On October 4, 1776, she came down with a sickness that caused her to slip in and out of delirium, all while describing visits to heavenly and spiritual realms. She fell into a coma and nearly died when, 36 hours later, she miraculously recovered. She told her family that she had passed to the angel world and then had been reanimated by a spirit to deliver oracles of God. She told her family and friends that the girl they knew was gone. She was now the public, universal friend. After attending church that Sunday, she began preaching under a tree in the churchyard, speaking with such passion that it captivated those that heard. She began traveling around the New England area, gathering followers who believed her to be an avatar of God. What she preached was not around doctrine or ritual, but rather a much more free-form relationship with God. The Universal Friend, now dubbed the Pioneer Prophetess, and her followers found a commune near the lakes of central New York where, contrary to some of the stories told, she died and was buried in town. Now, moving forward, let's talk about someone who according to the author, did more than any other to shape the occult and alternative religious traditions of America, Andrew Jackson Davis. Born in 1826 to a destitute family in upstate New York, Davis had a tough life. 
His father was an alcoholic who could barely keep food on the table and had to work odd jobs to help them survive. Education was not something at the top of the list. But as anyone growing, you need something to do with your mind. And so Davis became enthralled with the local legends of ghosts, witches, and other urban legends. Though he did not like the hellfire and brimstone variety of spirituality that was offered from the preachers in the Hudson Valley area, it didn't make sense to him. He wasn't and believed you shouldn't be afraid to meet your God. His family moved to Pecumseh in 1839 where he was enrolled in a Quaker school where there were no adult teachers, but rather the students taught each other. Naturally, Davis was soon placed in charge of his own class. In 1843, Davis saw a traveling mesmerist. And as a quick aside, a mesmerist is someone who uses the lawyer Franz Anton Mesmer's methods for healing called mesmerism. He believed that entrancing people could manipulate the unseen ethereal matter which animated all life in order to elicit healing. Which uh, we also hit upon in our episode on Secret Teachers of the Western World. Yep. Davis underwent the mesmerism and found that he could not be entranced. At least not from that mesmerist. However, when a local tailor started practicing it, Davis agreed to let him experiment on him and found that this time Davis could enter a trance and, even more surprising, could do it easily. During one session in the winter of 1844, he found that he was having difficulty rising from the trance. When he did come out, he immediately went to bed and fell asleep. He woke to the voice of his recently deceased mother. He ran to the sound outside and saw a vision of a flock of unruly sheep being led by an overwhelmed shepherd. This set him on a path of what some would call a vision quest. He crossed the frozen Hudson River and climbed the Catskills where he saw visions of nature's beauty. He eventually stumbled upon a fenced graveyard, and here he had visions where he encountered the spirit of the Greek physician Galen as well as Emanuel Swedenborg. Swedenborg told him, quote, By thee will a new light appear. He then returned to the tailor's home where he began delivering lectures on religious and metaphysical topics that he supposedly received during his visions. In 1845, Davis began to spread his message alongside a doctor of botanic remedies and a universalist minister. They moved to Manhattan, where they lived in a series of cheap apartments while Davis spent his days in a deep trance during which he dictated visions of other planets, heaven, angels, afterlife realms, and the spiritual mechanics of the universe. These trances were open to the public and were witnessed by many known names, such as Edgar Allan Poe. Experts were conflicted on him, but many gravitated to his teachings. His heaven, called the Summerlands, was truly egalitarian, a place for all races and religions. He believed in a female aspect of God, sexual liberation, and a universal faith based on reason. And his influence would grow beyond what I'm sure even he could foresee. Beginning in 1876, a new spiritual movement was being born back in New York on Manhattan's West 47th Street. As a young boy, Henry Steele Olcott, having an interest even at a young age in the arcane, made a pilgrimage to visit the Poughkeepsie seer Andrew Jackson Davis. Olcott was entered into New York University at age 15, but was forced to drop out when his father went broke. So, he decided to try his hand at being a farmer, and went, to live with his family, and went to live with family in Ohio. When he was done working, he would spend his time fostering his interest in spiritualism. Eventually, he went to agricultural school, and then opened a research farm near Mount Vernon, New York, where he developed a useful strain of Chinese sugarcane. When the Civil War broke out, 
Olcott was commissioned as a signals officer, but eventually became an investigator where he investigated cases of fraud and forgery among military contractors. When Lincoln was assassinated, Olcott volunteered to help the investigation and was even brought back to Washington to join the investigative team. When all of this was over, Olcott went and passed the bar, became a lawyer, and had a successful life with a loving family. But he became restless, like any genius, and his interest in spiritualism emerged again. He began making trips out to Vermont in 1874 to investigate a medium named William Eddy. There, he saw several manifestations common to physical mediums. This is also where he had met a woman who had also come to see this medium work. This woman, a heavy-set, chain-smoking, foul-mouthed woman who enchanted him with stories of fighting besides the revolutionary hero Giuseppe Garibaldi, traveled to exotic lands, exploring the Great Pyramids and other such tales. And this was, of course, Madame Helena Blavatsky. Blavatsky was said to have been dispatched to America by a secret order of religious masters, Mahatmas, or the Great White Brothers, white as in inner purity, not race. That's an important distinction. Yes, it is. Quote, her mission was to expose the limits of fallacies of spiritualism and point the way to higher truths. While she admired the cosmic visions of Andrew Jackson Davis, Blavatsky hinted at secret teachings that the Poughkeepsie seer and the trance mediums who trailed after him could only begin to guess. Soon after they met, Olcott began receiving letters written in golden ink from Blavatsky's hidden masters. Olcott even claimed to have witnessed one such master manifest before him. Addressing him as Brother Neophyte, the master told him to stay by Blavatsky's side and work with her day and night. Olcott helped her write Isis Unveiled, and he also helped her found the religious movement of Theosophy. In 1878, the pair departed for India, and they moved the entire Theosophical Society with them. They wished to rescue the East from colonialism. Allying themselves with the Indian independence movement, they encouraged the spread of literacy in the country. Olcott himself pulled an ox cart through the nation of Ceylon, now Sri Lanka, to speak at temples and open squares where he advised the youth to embrace their cultures, tradition, and resist the allure of missionaries bearing foreign faiths. Becoming one of the most influential Westerners in India's history, Olcott helped lobby the British authorities to let the Indian people celebrate Buddha's birthday, he helped design a Buddhist international flag, and within 20 years of his arrival, the number of Buddhist schools on the island grew from four to over 200. And I think it's safe to say that Henry Still Olcott lived a very fruitful and interesting life. I mean, yes. And with that, we'll move into discussion question number one. So let's talk about Madame Blavatsky. As I said in the summary, she claimed that she was sent here by a secret order of religious masters. These masters also manifested to Olcott. Now, who or what do you think these masters are? And keep in mind, the term Mahatmas was used here, which in India means a person regarded with reverence or loving respect. But do you think there's more to it? And why do you think that? Uh, I mean, that's the million-dollar question when it comes to anything regarding Blavatsky. Because there was so much about that woman that was so bombastic and out there that it's so easy to say, yeah, she was a con artist. Um, but that said, you then start looking at the bigger picture and how many lives she touched and the actual very appreciable changes she made through her work. 
Um, and plus the people like Alcott, uh, uh like, like Alcott, like some of her, like Basant, like some of her other followers who, and, I mean, even when they were at their wits end with her and even when they were feuding with her were still standing by their claims of what they'd seen her do. Um, I tend to think that like any good occultist, she was somewhere between a true magician and a liar. Uh, because yeah. ultimately, I mean, what is an occult? Think about what, what occultism is aiming to do by my will. I make reality. Well, if you're going to do that, you're probably going to be telling a lot of lies, both to yourself and to others, because you're, you're changing your reality to what you think it should be with the hopes that outer, you know, again, that outer reality will follow suit. I do know that there was some controversy later in life in which one of her followers, uh, Besant, uh, claimed that she had helped manufacture in, uh, encounters with the secret masters. But that said, she was also kind of vying for control of theosophy at the time. So it, it, it's she stood to gain by discrediting Blavatsky. Yeah. Um, in total, what I think the secret teachers are, I don't believe i know this comes up a couple times throughout this book uh i don't believe that there are immortal monks sitting on some hidden mountain in the himalayas that hold the secrets of the universe if there are fantastic i now know where i'm going next uh <laughs> i i have to go bug the immortals but beyond that uh i do think though it's quite possible if we look at everything that we've read uh that sometimes you know somebody finishes the quest you know they get there they achieve enlightenment they leave this world we've talked about rainbow souls or uh bodhisattvas. bodhisattvas and i i think it's quite possible that those entities like any other spiritual entity might communicate back at us sometimes i but again just like with everything else uh that we talk about especially if we're looking at uh looking at things like uh, alien abduction through a strictly spiritual framework we have to understand that everything we're seeing there is half truth, half what has been projected upon it by a human mind. And so th that's the struggle, I guess, when it comes to figures like Bavatsky and how much you can trust her is ultimately you need to understand that it, based off at least my reading of occult lore, um, we have to understand that she she may have been saying what she thought was 100% true. She might have genuinely believed there were secret masters hiding that were living embodied creatures living off on a mountain uh, because she believed maybe she saw one in, in a vision. But at the same time, that could easily be her brain interpreting something that the human mind fundamentally can't interpret. So I think if there is such a thing as the secret teachers, they are not here. They are akin to spiritual entities like demigods or, uh, you know, spirits of, of nature or of the world or the cosmos. Um, and again, I come back to if they are physically here, that is wild. And it radically changes a lot. Yeah, no, no, the, that, that's that's the kind of revelation that leads to me like sitting naked in my closet, rocking, holding a butcher knife and sobbing <laughs> for a week. Yeah. I, I'm kind of on the same wavelength as Nick of I, I don't think the secret I don't think the secret mass, the secret masters or the secret teachers were meant to be understood as physical breathing entities that were here on earth with us. Um, or if they were understood like that, that's probably not what they literally were. Um, and also that goes out the window if all, especially with Alcott being like, no, I, I saw him. It's like, how'd they get here, man? 
Yeah. Weren't he's, they? Wait. He said they manifested in front of him. Yeah. And and even besides that, I can't, I hope they're not physically here just because in general, um, usually when someone's going around saying that I am a being of perfect purity and I am the only ascended master from whom you should be studying, that typically ends with cyanide in the punch. <laughs> typically. So, yeah, I I hope the secret masters have departed their physical bodies and are sending us prophetic visions that we have to interpret with our own brain meat down here on the physical world just because most of the people who claim that while still being here physically are assholes and they have a very specific agenda they're working. Yeah. Um and yeah. like on that note, I take back what I said earlier. If we got the revelation that Jim Jones was a secret teacher, that's closet knife time. Yeah, fair. It's like if Dave it's like if Scientology turned out to be real and David Miscavige was the rightful ruler of Earth. It's like, okay, then we're anti-god terrorists now because no. Yeah, no, the zero percent. Yeah. Time to read the Golden Compass series. <laughs> I I am intrigued by them call by them being referred to as the Mahatmas, though. That is it fascinates me more and more with each one of these books that we read just how much of Western occultism was just kind of grave robbing from the Hindus. So I think I, I you know, we'll have to do a full on we'll have to do a full on biography of Blavatsky to fully understand this. But I be, because she was Russian, right? Yes. yes. So odds are good that she probably visited India prior to coming to America. Yeah, probably. So that's likely why that terminology was specifically used by her. Um, well, I mean, and like that even in itself is a whole epic. I know Lachman, Gary Lachman has a great biography of yeah. her that we'll do. Uh, but like even that, no, she did go to India, I believe, before she coming to America. And there's this great description of her climbing the mountains to go see the masters. And you got to remember, she, this is a 300 pound chain smoker, but the, the story was, is that she didn't really climb them. It was like crouching tiger, hidden dragon. She was like floating from rock to rock. Well, that's insane. Um, the, yeah. The only other thought I had about the secret masters is, you know, thinking about old school, your like old world European schools of magic and the right hand path and the idea of everything being cloaked in metaphor, I was wondering, it's like, maybe the secret masters were never people at all. Maybe these were the highest level of hidden texts mm. that are referred to as the secret masters because this is where the enlightenment comes from, is just these books that you have to be at a certain level before you can even read because otherwise they'll make you insane. Yeah, kind of like what the Masons do. Yeah, kind of like that. Actually, that is that is very interesting, especially because... Uh, one of Blavatsky's biggest contributions, I guess, to occult literature, uh, I guess what you call it, is uh, called Isis Unveiled. Right, that and, all kind of helped it, right. Yeah, and now if you've ever tried to read Isis Unveiled, it is not a page-turner. Um, <laughs> Nothing she wrote is. No, because it's not meant to be understood upon first read. It's like uh, it's like how some people treat the Bible. Yep. You're meant to reread passages over and over again and struggle and strive to understand each sentence because the idea is by doing that, you receive the revelations and kind of follow in her path. Mm -hmm. um, so I actually, I could see there's a very strong argument to be made considering she uh, that's how she approached her own books, that that was the tradition she was brought up in. So maybe yeah. those are the secret teachers is there are 
some sort of secret secret college of occult texts that gets shared around by the true occultists. And that might have been what Alcott meant of like when the masters manifested to him, that might have been him trying to use the coded language to explain when he started to understand this stuff. Yeah, when, when the moment, when the wheel clicked into place. Right. I mean, well, one thing else to remember is that, well, Blavatsky uh, very much, uh, she, she loved the American spirit towards occultism and how magic was kind of falling into the hands of everybody. We have to remember, she still came up in a European occult tradition. Yeah. It yep. would be it would be kind of part of her training to coach things in encoded terms and to operate through levels of, of secrecy and compartmentalization, probably just because that's how she learned. Well, and I, that's part to her. That's part of the journey. Yeah. So that, that absolutely would make sense. And so I, I mean, if I could absolutely buy that theory that the secret masters are really just, Really, it would be like the secret master is you. It's just when you finally understand the text and what you're what you're striving after, you are the secret masters. Yeah, which goes, which comes back to falling in line with so many other things that we've talked about. And on that note, um, something that that struck me about this, and I guess it shouldn't have have struck me too much, but here we are, um, is the similarities between. Uh, what things like Olcott and uh and and Davis and Blavatsky and and all of them were talking about and the similarities to Whitley Strieber. Yeah. Well, I mean, Whitley Strieber, you can again, uh so when we were talking to him, remember he brought up the Hermetica. Yep. Because that's what yep. he's reading right now. You can and putting the later books of the communion saga and especially a new world through that light, yeah. you can definitely see how he came to view his alien his alien encounters as a distinctly occult experience. It was uh it, it had more to do with Blavatsky talking to the hidden masters than it did aliens from Alpha Centauri. Which is what brings me to my uh my wild conspiracy theory that the secret masters are just the visitors from uh, Whitley Strieber's experience, they are one and the same. I mean, here's the thing is that I don't even think that that's that wild. I think that's pretty firmly textually supported. I, I, I think that too. But to anybody who hasn't read all the same books as us, they're probably going to think that's fucking bonkers. I mean, to people who haven't read the books we've read, uh, we probably already sound fucking bonkers. Yeah, that's fair. My parents have lost so much respect for me. I don't, I don't think so. I, I, I don't think Whatever respect they've lost in you, I've gained. <laughs> but I, I <laughs> okay, also, thank you. I so that was like that was the one th that was one of the big thoughts that came to me was like I just there's so many there were so many similarities between Blavatsky's story and Olcott's story, uh, and and Whitley Strieber and the fact that it took place in New York too didn't help. No, no, that's you know, fair. There's um, something wrong with that state. No. Is is it something wrong or is New York and the Catskills and all these other places in there just some kind of like fucking like, I don't know, power center for uh, occult ideas because so much American occultism started in New York. Yeah, it came from the burned over district, yeah, the Hudson Valley. Yeah. Uh, and I mean, that whole and, I, I kinda, it continues I, there because I mean, if you think about it into the evolution of today's uh uh, 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 occultism ideas. Still, more and more people come from that air from from New York. Wasn't the Modern Theosophy Society based in New York? Yes, I, I believe they still are. I, yeah, and, I think they still are. And I think 
I think one of the Fortean societies is too. That um, was that was the Fortean Society of New York that John Keel started. Yep, that's what I was. Uh, sadly, to say. it has folded. Okay, but it was still there. Like, yeah, well, I mean, and John Keel was. Uh, have I don't know, remember if he was from New York, but I think he was heavily associated with New York. He was there a lot. John Keel. Yeah, yeah, I think so. I got. I I have to look back on my about the author about him. He was in New York whenever he wasn't getting chased by bulls out in the rural countryside. He was born in Hornell, New York, and died in New York, New York. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, because and uh, remember, because I remember he was in his New York apartment when the Silver Bridge collapsed. Yep. Right. So you know that whole area uh, is kind of the the birthing spot of American weirdness. I'll yeah. call it. Uh, well, and you even look at, you know, you had the uh, in the Mothman prophecies with John Keel to bring him back up. Yes, he was chasing Mothman in Point Pleasant, West Virginia, but during that book, he was also chasing saucers all over the Hudson Valley area. Yeah, no, repeatedly they talked about, they brought up the Hudson Valley area. What oh. if what if the Hudson Valley area is like the test market that the, that the phenomenon uses to test new ideas? We got this cool saucer shape. Let's see if it's going to freak out the monkeys. Started in New York. We don't want to freak out the guys in Arizona, yet they're weird. Or maybe <laughs> just the sheer amount of like, colonizers slash immigrants coming through New York turned it into a gateway on a metaphysical level because it became that for so many people psychically. Oh, look at the, oh that's interesting. Look at the burned yeah. over district. This was an area that nobody wanted. This was an area that, that people, like I said in the summary, it was shit land. Nobody yeah. wanted to be there. And then they brought in this small group of people with big ideas and it fucking exploded because, uh, you know, it exploded with people though. It wasn't crops. It wasn't all these other things, but people flocked to this area and brought all of that energy there and built it all up. So now we've just got the remnants of hundreds of years of this built up great ideas all sparked in that area. So if it wasn't something before, it definitely is now. Yeah, no, I could see. And I do like the imagery of people treating that as, you know, the gateway to the country. So that's what it became. Mm -hmm. uh, kind of the whole idea of as above, so below. Yeah. What we project upon the world is what the world will kind of reflect back at us. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like, right at Ellis Island is there. Ellis yeah. Island is still standing in New York. And that is, honestly, all three of us likely are here because our families passed through Ellis Island. Yep. I'm pretty sure that that is fact for me. Not 100%, but pretty sure. I think so. I need to keep messing around with Ancestry.com, but I ran into some roadblocks that pissed me off, so I stopped. I don't know about my dad's family. I know my mother's family definitely came through Ellis Island because it was more recent than that other side, and my great-grandmother, when she was alive, said that her mother used to tell her about um, seeing the Statue of Liberty come over the horizon mm. uh, because she stared at it for so long she, bur she sunburned her scalp wow. because she wouldn't go back under when they called her. Huh. Interesting. I mean, after that long at sea, I would too. Yeah. yeah. All right. Ready to go on? Yes. I suppose. All right. Let's move into section two. In the later 19th century, theosophy, mesmerism, and spiritualism all made up parts of the American spiritual identity and all taught that divine mysteries were not the sole purview of God and his clergy, but were seen in everyday life. Meanwhile, Science and political philosophy was in the process of radically changing that life. This was the age that brought us telegraphs, motor engines, electricity, automated production, germ theory, evolution, Marxism, Freudian analysis, and so much more. Soon enough, 
the intellectuals of America came to believe that there was no topic that could not be tackled by science, and that included religion and God. A loose-knit movement was formed around this idea. This was known as New Thought, which maintained that the individual creative mind was God. As such, a person could literally think their dreams into existence. New Thought can truly be traced back to one individual, a clockmaker named Phineas P. Quimby. Quimby noticed that his tuberculosis seemed to ease whenever he took a carriage ride through the main countryside, and in turn, noticed that when his spirits were lifted, that the illness seemed to abate for a time. And hearing word of the rising tide of mesmerism, he soon attended a mesmerist lecture in Belfast, Maine, given by a Massachusetts physician named Robert Collier. Fascinated, he soon learned the skills to mesmerize people on his own. Like Andrew Jackson Davis, he had little formal education. He was self-schooled, which would become a focal point for his later detractors. He began touring New England with a 17-year-old boy named Lucius Berkmar, who Quimby would mesmerize before amazed audiences. While entranced, Berkmar was said to provide the cure for many illnesses utilizing folk remedies. Quote, but Quimby eventually grew convinced that it was neither Berkmar's power to mentally scan the human body nor his herbal tea remedies that were curing people. Rather, it was the boy's ability to change their beliefs about the illness. The mind itself was where the actual cause and cure seemed to rest. He became to believe that the subconscious was an extension of the divine and he developed a philosophy of mental healing and began to treat patients with it and without the use of a mesmeric trance or any clairvoyant intermediary. Instead, he focused on helping the patient change their own beliefs about the disease and then will those new beliefs into existence. In 1862, Quimby began treating a woman named Mary Glover Patterson, who would later remarry and renamed herself Mary Baker Eddy. Eddy was a very influential supporter of spiritual healing. She codified a theology around Quimby's core ideas and dubbed it Christian science. Quote, Eddie's philosophy at once overlapped with Quimby's and sharply diverged from it. Rather than extolling the agencies of the human mind, she believed in the need for its eradication. The mortal mind, steeped in malevolence and illusions, needed to be overcome by the universal divine mind, the one true and absolute reality. Eddie denied the reality of disease, evil, and physical matter itself as mere human perversions, or an illusion of material sense, as she later wrote in her masterwork, Science and Health. Which is the most innocuous title for an esoteric text. Science and Health. I feel like I would walk by that book a thousand times and have no idea it was telling me to fix my corn with my mind. Honestly, a lot of the like Christian science books, things like that, had a lot of really names. You know what's funny? I, I have walked by Christian reading, science reading rooms my whole life and never really knew what it was about. I always thought I was like, yeah, those are probably like the people who think the dinosaurs and cavemen ran alongside each other. I thought like the exact same thing. <laughs> so this for a was long this time. was revelatory for me. Yeah. Yeah. No, they're uh they're one of the ones that are still adhering to the no vaccines thing, yeah. and they frequently uh, refuse treatment for life threatening illnesses. Like Christian Science is the sect where they constantly get taken to court because they're denying their children leukemia treatment. Yeah, no, they're they're very problematic. Yeah. <laughs> After Quimby died in 1866, Eddie tried to find a new mentor, but to no success. Instead, opting to start her own religion, you know, like you do. 
To her followers, she dismissed Quimby as a backwoods mesmerist, an unschooled man whose ideas were riddled with egoism. Naturally, Quimby's followers retaliated. They cited her numerous articles in which she lauded Quimby. However, she claimed that if she wrote such things, it was only while she was under Quimby's vile mesmeric command. Dude, I, what are you doing? I'll say this. As far as r- random historical feuds go, I only supported you because I was under your hypnotic power is a hell of an argument. Yeah. Uh, I, you know what's funny is it just totally baffled me. Yeah, no, it, it, it makes... It, it just... It just... It didn't make any sense. Well, that's also, that's also not how mesmerism worked. Uh, right. And she knows that. Can, can you just imagine, though, he had her under for like eight fucking hours sitting next to her, feeding words in her while she's writing out an entire goddamn essay? I mean, no. I, I mean, I had to do that today without the trance. I wish I would have had the trance. I mean, if you like, I can just start dosing you with opium. Hmm. I've been there. I don't want to do it again. I don't I don't think Rory will be more productive on opium. Oh, no. thank God. Now I don't have to figure out how I was going to get opium. No, last time I was on opium, I got into a car accident. <laughs> <laughs> Eddie was harsh to her students, banishing them from the organization for the slightest infraction or attempt to innovate beyond what she taught. Like doing opium. By the mid-1890s, amid several court battles, Eddie managed to copyright Christian science despite the term being originally coined by Quimby, and began to sue anyone who dared to use the title without her permission. I feel like American occultists also sued each other way more than European occultists ever did. Well, that's because the courts in America are um, very different than the courts in Europe. Also, in Europe, they would often just settle things with like wizard duels where they would just stand there and stare at each other really hard, trying to hex each other, and then nothing would happen and they'd go home. And also, for a long time, the uh, solution to anything in Europe was an actual duel. I mean, that's also true. (laughs) There were murders. Yeah. I suppose I shouldn't make light about the murders. Enough time has passed. You're fine. As such, other adherents outside her control began calling it divine science, mental science, or the science of right thinking, and then finally, new thought. New Thought became, and still is, the main tool used to help influence those inside the corporate world. Quote, New Thought literature displayed an innate grasp of the can-do, upbeat attitude required to succeed in the new world of corporate America. And to many Americans, at least measured in book sales, it came as a help. This was the dawn of American exceptionalism, where getting ahead and being the best became dominant ideologies, especially at work. Instead of inner success being the goal, as it was likely intended, it became outer, tangible, often financial success. Many of the writers in the 1920s New Thought movement hence came to see the acquisition of wealth as no less than God's will. The original transcendental roots of New Thought were forgotten, replaced with a system meant to prioritize individual success and material gains. All of this led to a gentleman named Wallace Waddles who, in my opinion, has the best name. He sounds like an off-brand version of the Penguin. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, a little bit. (laughs) A Methodist minister and Christian socialist reformer, who, after hearing a radical minister named George Heron speak, who used Christ's teachings to condemn the cruel mechanisms of capitalism, had finalized a spiritual philosophy that he had been working on. But 
It was too late for Waddles. The New Thought movement was pushing away from the spiritual, and by the time that he became a prominent voice in the New Thought movement, he had been ousted from his church and had gone too far in his social radicalism by advocating that all churches should refuse money given by anyone who owned a business that used sweatshop labor. Waddles saw the titans of industry as important in that they created the organized infrastructure of production, but now the time has come for the common man to seize on distribution and take control. Seize the means of production. Yes. We're still trying. While Waddles was too late, or maybe too early, for his radical ideas, his foundation helped lead the way for one Ernest Holmes. Holmes was born in 1887 in a small farmhouse in Maine. He was never formally educated, something that we'll see a lot, though, like many of the people we'll learn about today, read voraciously of religious philosophy, physics, and the writings of Ralph Waldo Emerson. Holmes moved to Venice, California, and by 1916, with his partner Fenwick, was filling lecture halls speaking on metaphysical topics. His following grew, especially due to his mind power healing. He traveled the country, testing his message on different audiences and forming the philosophy that would come to be called religious science. He sought to move new thought away from the mires of personal gain and wealth and refocus it back on connection to God. He also believed that the human mind was, to a degree, at one with God and possessed the same creative power. As such, this power was intrinsically good. But what of evil? Evil, to Holmes, was the chaos of an unstructured world. It was powerless without agency. Best seen as the absence of good rather than a force of its own. Holmes preached on the law of mental creativity, which, to his teachings, will mean that a person will bring good or evil according to their use of it. A central law to all of this being the law of attraction, which got its start with Andrew Jackson Davis, and was too challenged by this issue. New Thought had adopted the law of attraction and reconfigured it to instead argue that whatever a person or group of people thought about most often would come to occupy their outer space as well. Ultimately, this allowed some to justify the existence of slaves, or the cruelties of an unfair economic system, as the argument could be made that its victims were manifesting the evils that beset them, and hence did not need to be saved. By the end of his life in 1960, Holmes was disheartened by the emergence of factions of all the infighting and dogma within religious science. He told a pupil that he wished he could leave the church and find his own way. But, His movement was successful, having founded over a hundred different congregations with more than a hundred thousand members that are still active today. And New Thought continued to go strong and in many different directions. For some, they followed the writings of Norman Vincent Peale, the author of The Power of Positive Thinking. This book laid the groundwork for the self-help explosion that still litters the bookshelves of your favorite bookstore. While Peel removed the magical laws and ancient secrets that were the base of the New Thought tradition and replaced them with prayer and Bible reading, others, like Frank B. Robinson, went a different direction. Robinson started a new religion based firmly on New Thought that was called Psychiana. The first of its kind, Robinson guaranteed results or your money back. And hey! That's still him doing one better than Scientology, because if Scientology doesn't work out for you, they call you a freeloader and they chase you down when you try to leave. I mean, it's, it's still a, be- a slightly better from back in the day where 
you know, sometimes they'll just cut, they would just cut your head off if like God refused to talk to you. Yeah. Yeah. Times were dark. Don't worry, everyone. They can be dark again. <laughs> and they're trying. Oh, every day at work, I weep in the bathroom for at least 10 minutes. At one point, Psychiano was the eighth largest religion in the world, and can be argued that his techniques gave direct rise to the evangelical industry, which co-opted many of his techniques to become one of the largest Christian sects in American history. Beginning in 1928, Robinson took out ads in magazines claiming that he had spoken with God, and anyone who followed his instruction could do the same. He claimed such a conversation would end any poverty, unrest, unhappiness, ill health, or any other material lack in your life. And for the low, low price of $20, this potential convert would receive 20 staple-bound lessons on the power of affirmative thought. Can you just imagine, though, the audacity if you try to, of someone trying to do this today? Hey, send me $20, and I'll send you a packet I printed off to tell you how to talk to God. Um, this is rampant today. Yeah, people still do this, Nick. This is everywhere. What? Like, everywhere. Uh, I guess they must uh, have good mailing lists because they know not to come to me. It's even more commonplace on the internet. How have I not encountered this? Because you don't go inside Christian sects where this is most prominent. Ah! N yeah, Nick, this is not actually that different from what Teal Swan is doing. Yeah. Actually, that's a good point. Well, yeah. I, I, considering I learned yeah. about her like a week ago... I forgive me. Like, uh, as a, I guess, a quick aside, inside evangelical churches, they would bring in uh, different preachers, preachers in quotations, that come preach their little message of power, the power of positive thinking and their variant of it. And then you can buy their books, buy their materials all there on uh, outside the, just outside the church door. Yeah. That shit is everywhere i wasn't aware we had reached the stage where churches had gift shops but oh oh, oh god we've yeah. been there oh yeah we've been there you know this is what i get for being completely out of touch with reality no this is what you get for just ignoring evangelical christian uh christian society which good for you the righteous gemstones is exaggerating a little bit and only a little bit yeah heavy in emphasis on a little bit yeah like, yeah, get gift shops in those mega churches, that, that's standard. That's how they keep the lights on because those places are enormous and they have huge power bills. Okay. Well, I feel sick now. <laughs> well, naturally, Robinson was widely successful, selling over a half a million copies in just a few years. America. Word of mouth spread Robinson's message as people claimed that his teachings helped them land jobs, sell or buy a home, and escape their debt. He even corresponded with Italian dictator Benito Mussolini and, when war loomed, wrote to the man to beg him not to join Hitler's Axis powers. When war did break out, he decided to turn Psychiana into a psychic army for the Allies. He sent out buttons to his followers bearing Hitler's image, as well as a simple affirmation meant to be repeated hourly to manifest Hitler's defeat. Now, like any movement, there are people who don't like it. Robinson was investigated for mail fraud to no success, and the government even attempted to deport him as a competing publisher accused him of lying about his birthplace. But the more they tried to stop him, the larger he grew. 
1940, his rate of articles, ads, and other forms of media outreach reached an estimated 12 million American homes a year. And his lectures ran on more than 80 radio stations. And on October 19, 1948, Robinson's heart gave out. He had lived an extraordinary life in his 62 years, going from addicted to the bottle to a leader of millions. There was doubt in his own belief of his faith and that he was only in it for the money, but there is no doubt that he influenced many. Unfortunately, with no apostles or followers to pick up the mantle, the memory of Robinson and his religion faded fast from the American cultural landscape, even the town of Moscow, where he started all of this, excluding him from their historical record. But his methods were not forgotten, with many other religious orders now using mail-order ad-focused methods to recruit, soon becoming commonplace. Now look at that, I just needed to keep listening. Churches also learned that Americans wanted religion which focused on the needs of man here in material reality, and as such, adjusted to bring in a new flock. And with that, we're going to move into our second discussion question. Whoa! So let's talk about New Thought and its evolution. So the base of New Thought, being this internal growth that started with Quimby and Waddles and expanding into Robinson and Holmes, this way of thinking is still very, very popular today. In fact, the book, The Power of Positive Thinking, is still used widely in corporate culture and is on the recommended reading list uh, at my work for anybody aspiring to be a leader. So what about New Thought was so attractive to so many And what was the corrupting force that led it so astray from its foundation? So I think that I I think the thing that is appealing about new thought, it's the same thing that's appealing about chaos magic and the force in Star Wars and I guess occultism in general is the idea of taking people who let let's face it most working class people or people who experience any amount of significant marginalization spend their slash our lives essentially being told repeatedly by the world itself that we are inherently powerless or at least significantly less powerful than other people and new thought along with all those things that i listed are like no 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 it has never been outside of you it has never been kept from you. It has never been hoarded by other people you have been lied to. Th- this power, this might, this ability to change and control the world around you, that is inside you. It has always been inside you. And you just have to remember that and seize it. And then you can do anything you want. You can have anything you want. Because that was... That was a big thing with Robinson and with all of the other early prosperity gospels is anything you want is already achievable. You just need to achieve it by believing you can achieve it. And I, I and as for what corrupted it, I I think it's the same thing that ha, that that will corrupt things like feminism and every other new form of thought or new theoretical framework that attempts to adjust inequality in the world where there are people who either really like the status quo exactly the way it is 
or think that fixing the problems in the world means flipping the script and the people that were on top are on bottom now and everything that was done every shitty thing that the ruling class ever did has to be done to them now and that that is justice like i basically it, it, it's like any other tool it it got corrupted by powerful assholes who realized that they can use this language to and everybody throws this word word around because it's also been corrupted but i i'll use it here cuz it feels moderately appropriate to essentially gaslight whole swaths of the population into essentially thinking that that the problems have already been fixed and if you're still seeing problems it's because you're not doing it right no i th- i think you're spot on uh with the the idea that it was used to gaslight people because i i 100% think it was and I think those like Peel did what he did intentionally, uh, stripping it away and making it more palatable yeah. for the masses. Because and and they only and it was like picking and choosing bits and pieces of what they liked about it, um, uh, essentially just saying like, or essentially utilizing it as a tool to make money, and that's it. Because it's all like. So much of it, including the power of positive thinking, which I've read, by the way, um, is surface level occultism at best. Yeah. You know, it's surface level uh, Buddhism at best. Yeah. You know, uh, because they they talk about, you know, using affirmations and mantras and all of these other things that are uh, a lot that have a lot deeper meaning than what you know, uh, what books like that are, 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 are saying now is what they're saying bad. No, like after uh, saying affirmations to yourself are, are, are awesome. It's something that everybody should do, but they're never taking it that step further. Yeah. It, it, yeah. It's like, it's, it's like that, um, that bit you were reading about saying it's like, well, like people stuck in situations of poverty or slavery or whatever they clearly did that to themselves because they're manifesting it around them and it's like motherfucker what are you smoking well it's ignoring systemic uh issues that that uh that are that are are not their fault that they have no control over and saying sorry you should have thought harder which really comes down to so one of the big problems that a lot of the new thought uh philosophers esotericists uh, one of the big problems they ran into was specifically regarding evil mm-hmm. uh, in that if evil exists, if we're creating the world and evil exists in the world, what does that say? Where, where, wh- How can, if I'm creating the world, a burglar come into my home and shoot me in the liver? Like, how can, did I make that happen? Is that something I subconsciously wanted? And the problem there is obviously, well, no, no one's going to want that. So why did these things happen? And various philosophers had different answers to it, but. What I think what things like Peel's philosophy and the later prosperity gospels did is it simply said that that's not even a question worth answering. It, it basically yeah. said uh, it, it, it places the blame entirely at your feet. And in doing so, I actually could also see an argument being made that it uh, alleviates the guilt of anyone else who is contributing towards a system that is causing misery in others. Oh, exactly. They were patting themselves on the back and saying, good job. We, we, we went ahead and said what we are doing is okay. Which is why I said that I think it was corrupted by a lot of the people who liked the way the status quo already is. And that's mm-hmm. kind of why I brought up feminism because a lot of mainstream feminism 
does a lot to hold up the patriarchy and hold up things like, you know, heteronormativity, because a lot of the early leaders of feminism are like, we want to improve our station. Fuck the rest of y'all. Like, and that's what I see coming out of a lot of this new thought bullshit is it's is it's if to me, it feels like just a lot of working class white people using it to climb a corporate ladder that they could have climbed any fucking way. And now they're and now anybody who, you know, finds the ladder for them is greased, broken or not there. Well, why didn't you just climb it like I did? It's like, bitch, they showed you where it was. Right. Well, I, I think that ultimately that, that's what I think another factor which contributed to this, which is also part of a, what you were saying there is greed mm-hmm. in that in it, for anything to truly thrive in America, it has to be profitable. Yeah. Uh, and and I, it's almost it's almost this insidious infection that takes place because, you know, you start with, let's say, a charity that you're working well. You're working at charity. You want to send out mailers. All that costs money. You have to pay the printer. You have to pay the designer. So now you're getting staff. So now you're you're having to you know people that you have to take care of. So there has to be revenue streams coming in. And hey, what great idea? Why don't we put our logo on some T-shirts and sell that and puts out some bumper stickers? And before long, you're not running a charity. You're running a gift shop. Yeah. Uh, because that's what you needed to do in order to simply live. Uh, and I, I think that that is a pervasively corruptive influence that that has a tendency of taking our best intentions and turning them to shit. Now, don't get me wrong. Like, I, I do think there there is certain advantages to capitalism that certainly did a lot in this country. Uh, you know, it put, put us into put the U.S. into a position of supreme power. Yeah, uh, it propelled it, us it, to being the number one power in the world. Yeah, at, at least military. Mil- militarily our economy is the driving force for the world well yeah and and capitalism yeah capitalism is another example of something that got corrupted because it was literally designed to destroy monarchies yep yep well and so back to new thought like i I do want to say on the whole taking new thought as an idea i think there's a lot of value there no i do too Uh, uh if you take it to what quimby and what waddles wanted I think there's a lot there. Yeah. The problem is with this whole idea of externalizing new thought and making it just about material gains. It kind of rests in this assumption that, hey, the world would be a better place if everyone does this. But for many of them, it seems to be that in their mind of what is, you know, the, the perfect world, the world that they want to imagine, there would have to be people below them. You know, it kind of goes back to that thing of some people need there to be losers in order to feel like winners. And so what where do you get in that situation? If everyone is manifesting their reality independently and we can all have everything we ever wanted. But what I want is for Rory and Jay to be poor. Like, Where does that get us? It doesn't it doesn't. It's a it's a it's a uh, point where the philosophy fails because it was never meant to be applied toward money and jobs and things like that it was meant to be applied towards adjusting how you see the world in order to change how you interact with it to change your life yeah because the actual foundation of new thought like that what quimby and what waddles were were pushing for is no different than so many of the other base like the basics uh are basics of those faiths thinking about uh about buddhism thinking about hinduism thinking about gnosticism 
they're all very similar in in that sense and what they were striving for. So yeah, the second that they turned it from an an internal journey to an external journey, it was no longer the same idea. It became something completely different. Agreed. Now, I think, and we've all touched on it, just to throw my little bit in here at the end, um, I think the, the thing that drove New Thought away from what it could have been, besides, like, there, there's obviously, there's a lot of, there's a lot of factors into it. Uh, what's her name? Uh, um, Eddie being honestly probably one of the reasons why it didn't take off in the correct direction because of her uh, bashing on on Quimby. But I think capitalism at its core is the reason why New Thought took off in the direction that it did because it became marketable. Yep. Well, and also if you're looking in a capitalist economy, uh, again, it goes back to that alleviating guilt thing. Uh, we talk about, you know, there's no no such thing as ethical... Uh, what do you say? What do you there say? is no ethical consumption under late stage capitalism. Right. In a situ in a system of haves and have nots, um, I mean, for, at least for me, I hope it's human nature to feel something when you're looking at these people who are living in poverty, who are starving, who are not able to get health care. And again, what this does is it's it ties up that situation with a neat little bow and says, well, you don't have to worry about it. They're doing it to themselves. And right. so because of that, like you're saying, you can ignore anything systemic that led to it. You can ignore any conditions that were outside that person's control. And you can ignore any of the, uh, I guess, uh, any of the influences and help you got along the way. Like, for example, I was born into a very supportive family. They paid for my undergraduate college. I uh, had support when I wanted to look, go follow a writing career and look into the arts I had access to the internet, abundant food. I had a shitload of advantages. And, and, but the fact is, there seems to be a whole lot of people who don't are, refuse to acknowledge that they had help getting anything they have in life. They need to be the grand poobah. It's main character syndrome. Yeah. They believe that you know, they are the center of the world and anything that they get, uh, they deserve. And there was, no, there was never anything that other people did that influenced the situation they're in. Yeah. And, and once you have that mentality, it becomes very easy to disregard uh, poor people, the homeless, people who are dying uh, dying on the street from preventable illnesses. Yeah. No, uh, it's those are the same people that, that sit there and say that white privilege isn't a thing. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've never been randomly stopped, and I've been driving with a legal pot in my car. Yeah. I had two friends in, I had two friends in college who were African American and they always made me drive anywhere we went. And one time I asked them and they're like because you can go whatever speed you want and we see you blow right past those cops and they don't do a damn thing. Yep, I used to always drive for my friends just because uh even though I did get pulled over a lot because my car got flagged, but that's for completely different reasons. I was problematic. <laughs> you were actually a criminal. Yeah. Yeah, that's okay. Um, but like even then it's like, but we're not gonna get pulled over because you know, just randomly in you know, white town Michigan that that I, that we grew up in. Right. Anyway, before we go off on that tangent, anything else that we want to talk about on this one? 
Uh, I I said my thesis statement about what I think happened to New Thought. Right. Yeah, I mean, largely, I, I realize I just retread same ground, but Jay pretty much hit every idea I had I thought to hit, and I was less scrambling. Yeah, that's okay. Ultimately, I think it was still still good. You did a good job, Nick. Thank you. Yeah. Moving into section three, we are going to take a step into the experience of Black Americans and their part in the history of American occultism. We begin with Frederick Douglass, who, at a young age, unlike some of our others that we have talked about, was not interested in the occult. He was a slave child and was quickly separated from his mother and sold to a different plantation. He got a taste for learning from his new owners. To the chagrin of the man of the house, his wife was teaching Douglass to read. He was eventually sold off and his new owner, not liking this well-to-do slave, he had him loaned to a brutal slave master named Edward Covey to ensure that Douglas was broken of any illusion of civility and accepted his role as a field laborer. When he returned, he was not the same, but he was not broken. He would stand up to the beatings and would fight back, one time even wrestling Covey for two hours and eventually getting to back down, unable to overcome his teenage slave. But that's not the only piece of that story. The night before he was sent back to the farm, he hid in the woods, and as he hid, he was discovered by another slave, a man named Sandy Jenkins. And he wrote in his 1855 memoir that Sandy was not a religious man, but, quote, he professed to believe in a system for which I have no name. He was a genuine African and had inherited some of the so-called magical powers said to be possessed by African and Eastern nations. Jenkins was a root worker, an African system of magic that mixed African traditions, Native American lore, Kabbalah, and European folklore, also known as hoodoo, which is not the same as voodoo. Voodoo originates from the traditions of the Fon and Yoruba people of the Western African coast. It mixed African roots and beliefs in a spirit world with the cosmology of the Catholic missionaries. African gods were represented by Catholic saints, with the two entities often seen as one and the same. Jenkins told Douglas that he had to return to Covey, but first, he led Douglas to another part of the woods in search of a certain route, which Douglas was to carry at all times on his right side, and if he did, it would be impossible for any white man to whip Douglas. Doubting this claim, he still took the route anyway just to please the older man. Now, after Douglas had fought back, he was eventually strung up for a beating, and it was this beating that made Douglas decide to fight. Quote, I now resolved that, however long I might remain a slave in form, the day had passed forever when I could be a slave in fact. By the 20th century, root workers were commonly buying consumer products like soap with lemongrass and then using them in their magical traditions. This in turn gave rise to spiritual catalogs which, sold by mail, had all that any root worker could want and were sent to your house for a modest fee. This led to easier access to the books for practices like hoodoo and more, offering the texts like the 6th and 7th books of Moses, aka the hoodoo Bible, to be more widely accessible to those that wanted it. Now, the marriage of African culture and magic and the emancipation Moses brought were best encapsulated in the works of an author named Henry Gamache which is a pseudonym. The author's actual identity is lost to history. His books were sold by 
the previously mentioned spiritual catalogs and had some of the finest works on hoodoo ever produced. He published books on candle magic, herbs, and more, though his greatest achievement was a book which, even today, has never gone out of print, The Mystery of the Long Lost Eighth, Ninth, and Tenth Books of Moses. Now, despite its use in emancipation-based conjecture, hoodoo itself was apolitical. Most practitioners simply focused on it helping their neighbors, finding lost loves, and other such material concerns. That is until 1916, when Marcus Garvey came onto the scene. Garvey, a supporter of New Thought, created the first black media empire of newspapers and assembled the largest international black political organization in history. Those that followed him, many of which had lived through and remembered slavery, treated his mission with religious fervor, and the FBI, watching him, noted that his followers thought of him like a black Moses. Garvey used New Thought as a means of overcoming the racism and oppression that black Americans faced, mixing his radical opposition of white authority with the philosophy of self-sufficiency he'd found in Booker T. Washington's book Up From Slavery. Garvey coached that the principal difference between white people and black is that white people lived by science while black people lived by emotion. As such, he advocated gaining a scientific understanding of God, not an emotive one. This created a direct link to the teachings of Quimby and indicated that he was likely a source for many of Garvey's ideas. But Garvey was not alone. Quote, The magical use of science were not limited to the West Indies or Garvey. Indeed, the man who styled himself as Garvey's American successor used a philosophy of mystical science to form the basis for one of the most beguiling and influential inner-city religious movements of the 20th century, the Moorish Science Temple. Led by a man named Timothy Drew, or to his followers, Noble Drew Ali, the Moorish Science Temple, or MST, was the first group to introduce Islamic images and ideas to America. Though he has no ties to the faith, Ali would often invoke Allah or Islam. His church was more akin to an American mystery cult built from the pieces of New Thought, Masonry, Theosophy, and Occultism. The key to his science was his ultra-secret Circle 7 Quran, which members were sworn to keep hidden from outsiders. A secret which was kept even decades after his death. Ali believed that there was no such thing as black people, but that they had all been mislabeled and were truly Asiatic. Eventually, the contents of the Circle 7 Quran were discovered by the outside world. In its 48 chapters, it depicted the lost years of Christ in which he traveled to Tibet, India, and Egypt in search of truth. A depiction Ali lifted almost entirely from a 1908 work the Aquarian Gospel of Jesus the Christ by Levi H. Dowling. The rest of the book preached ideas of self-sufficiency, good living, and other ideas which would come to influence the other black nationalist and black Islamic organizations that were to come. All ideas shared with various sources throughout history and repurposed his ends. But like many religions have done throughout history, like the Romans with, well, the vast majority of their gods. The final person that we're going to go over for this section is the mathematician and cosmological philosopher Robert T. Brown. Influenced by Garvey, he believed that the one spiritual movement that held more power than Garvey's was the religion of Christ itself. Brown, born in 1882, joined the Theosophical Society in 1915, drawn by their egalitarian and universal brotherhood philosophy. 
He spent time in World War II as a POW, but led his fellow prisoners in guided meditations where they would visualize food and the strength that they gained from it. In 1950, he and his wife founded the Hermetic Society of World Service, a theosophically inspired religious order that claimed to be led by the same masters that led Blavatsky. He died in 1978, but his society endured. Today, it is headquartered in the Dominican Republic and has members across America and Latin America. And with that, we're going to move into our third discussion question. Yay! Yay! Now, I know we are all about as white as it gets. Oh, yes. But I want us to attempt to discuss something here, at least for a minute. Now, for those that are new to the occult, a lot of these names that we've went over, they've probably never heard of maybe with the exception of Frederick Douglass, because he prob- arguably isn't really an occultist. But the ideas that they were spreading are ultimately so deep and very powerful. Now, why do you think it is that some of these ideas never slipped into our mainstream culture? Do you think that they were intentionally buried? Or do you think maybe because we're white, they just never crossed into our lives or into our culture? So ultimately, what do you think And do you think there is a chance that we can, as a society, change this? Um, Little from column A, little from from column B. I think that definitely we might have just not encountered those sorts of names before because of the uh, racial bubble that we live in. I mean, because try as you might, you live in a bubble. Everyone at home, you live in your own bubbles. It's just the nature of existing because we all get our information from different places we have people in our lives that we trust to tell us the truth or, or that we trust their opinion on things and that ends up influencing our opinion or even just down to where you live dictates the information that you uh, not that that you receive because through the Internet you can receive all of it. But what you will seek out uh if you're never told that there are, you know, other other kind other kinds of thoughts going on out there, you'll, you might never have a reason of looking of seeking them out. Usually true. Now, I do think that uh, racism plays a pretty key factor here. I mean, the sad truth is that does in every era of American history, including the current one. Yep. Uh, And the fact the fact is that you can't get away from that, especially if we want to grow as a society Um, regarding black occultists specifically. I mean, this was one of my favorite chapters of the book because I learned a hell of a lot. There was same here. I didn't know. Like when I said that in the intro to the question, like I'm one of those people that didn't know these names. Yeah. Now that said, I don't think they were uh, cut from history because they were occultists. I think they were cut from history in the same way every black person who do- is successful or does things in American history tends to get cut out. Yeah. Um. So yeah, I th- that that specific question to me doesn't really. It's not about occultism in this case. Now, that said, what I also found interesting was that last figure there, Robert T. Brown, uh, his writings, while they were coached in occultism and esotericism, uh, basically were quantum theory. He was one of the that's a a good point. He was one of the first people and he was a mathematician. He wasn't just an occultist. He was one of the first uh, thinkers that was really putting out the ideas that in the modern day became quantum physics. You don't hear about them. Yeah, and I really wish that I didn't, you know, that the show could be six hours long so that I could do a, a deep dive into every single one of these individuals. Because, but ultimately, read the book. Oh, yeah. As with every book we cover, and we were just talking about bubbles, right? 
you got to remember that uh, this show, we are we do our, our damnedest to provide a comprehensive summary of the book, but every single episode, things have to get cut. Yeah, because entire chapters got cut from this because there's just so much. Yeah, so please, if uh, the information you receive on our show interests you, seek out the book because there's more of it there. Yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, once again, uh, largely on the same wavelength as Nick is, uh, they got cut out just because America's racist and occultism is racist and American occultism is double racist. And, um, when I say occultism is racist, I, I just mean that Western occultism is dominated by white people. Yeah. And, um, yeah, so I, I think that it. I think they just they just kind of got buried because there is still the inherent assumption assumption of either they have nothing of value to say or they have nothing of value to say to us. Like there is uh, it's interesting because this is this this kind of ties back into almost what I was talking about with with new thought of people appropriating progressive language and then intentionally or not using it to uphold existing status quo. Um, some people legitimately believe in a form of woke segregation where they're like, well, if it's made by a black person, it's not for you, non-black people, and you shouldn't engage with it at all because you'll taint it and you won't understand it, which leads to, you know, people ignoring the contribution of black occultist philosophers and other thinkers because... Well, what relevance could that have to me have to me? And it's like, well, I don't know, man, if you keep asking to have this treated like a serious science, I mean, can you imagine saying a black physicist has nothing to contribute to white people? Like, and the, it, right. And that spreads beyond just occultism because how how many white people like, like let's be honest, how many white people do you think do you think actually know that rock music is not white? Um, almost none of them. Like they, I guarantee you, they're like, oh, but it's it's a white dominated music, yeah, because we took it, yeah, because we took it like we took everything else. Because let's be honest, white people suck at making their own music, but they're really good at perfecting somebody else's. <laughs> what is wrong with us? Like, because before be, before that, we did uh, nothing but like, I guess you know, the generic pop and hymns, yeah. I mean, most like we go back to uh, season of the witch. A lot of music in America before really the advent of rock was gospel. It was yeah. it, it was it was church it was church hymns and it was folk music and it was just like the 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 lady singers singing like uh like ballroom style music. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, and I <sighs> and and I guess the reason why I brought this question up is because. It's something that isn't talked about enough, not even just inside the world of occultism, but in, in, in even in the world of the paranormal. It's not talked about uh, a lot that, that black people, that black Americans have influenced all of this. And a lot of times they're just left by the wayside. So really it's like, I guess it's like, how, what, do we, what, do you, what do we think we can do not not necessarily with our tiny little platform, the podcast, but as a society to continue to to try and and change this to bring more light to these people that people don't know about, or to just give more space for black people in these spaces. I'm I I'm gonna say something that is entirely grounded in my own very myopic view of the world that is inherently tilted towards utopianism. 
because I, I like to believe that we're that we can pull this around. I like to believe that there is a future for humanity. I'm not I'm, I'm talking about climate change right now and the various apocalyptic existential threats we seem to be facing on a daily basis. Um, but I, I regarding this topic specifically, you know, it does seem like in the course of my lifetime, uh, the racist rhetoric has gone wild. Yeah. And it's going coming more and more into the light and it's becoming more and more a dominant factor in I, I mean, it was always a dominant factor in American politics. Let's be oh, honest. Yeah. But I'm saying it's a dominant factor in American politics on openly. Yeah. Uh, it's no longer a something that you pushed under the rug or you could uh, get in trouble if you uh, you know got recorded saying racist shit. They're saying the quiet part out loud now. Thank you. That's the part I was trying to get at. Um, and I, I have to hope and this is just a hope that, you know, anytime uh, a movement or a philosophy is dying, that's when it gets the loudest, when it's in its death throes. Yeah. And yeah. I have to hope that we are getting better as a, as a people, that we are moving uh, in a direction where hopefully we're going to leave these people behind. And that's why things are getting as volatile as they are, because the world's slipping away from them and they know it. And, and I truly do believe that we are, um, because the vast majority, if you actually look at the data, mm -hmm. the vast majority of Americans believe in all of these these things, like thinking about like racial equality and gender equality and and all of those things, like the vast majority of Americans do believe in it. It's just, uh, I, I don't remember where I read this, but I, I, I once read that, uh, it might have even been on the show, um, like the, the person who like is losing the most is the loudest. Yeah. So these people who are, who are having their ideologies and their lives, that they, they're horrible, horrible ideologies stripped away from them because they're horrible. Yeah are yelling the loudest because they don't know what to do without that without that mentality without that rhetoric that they're so used to to thinking even though you know they had something where they could believe that they were above somebody else and they were raised inside this capitalistic America to believe that that was what was important to be above somebody else. Yeah, well it goes back to that what we were talking about earlier with the issue with uh commercialization of new thought. You know, in order for me to feel like a winner, there have to be losers. So right. I'm the only one that's allowed to manifest reality. Yeah. And I think that the popular, the, you know, ideas like New Thought uh, taking the shape that they did helped enhance things like racist rhetoric. Oh, it absolutely did. Now, that said, I think for me personally, I think the jury's out if uh, if they would we would have just found a different uh, vehicle to to uh, to ride in terms of racist rhetoric. If it's not one thing, it would have been another. It's just a matter of whether or not it would have been such a driving force to to the center of like things like corporate culture. Oh yeah, it's the fact the fact that new new thought drove inside corporate culture is honest to God what made it so much more powerful. Yeah, no, definitely. With, uh, bringing it down to the, the more specific, how do you make room for for voices of color in like the occult community? It, I, I'm just going to draw an example from my real life is that it, it takes conscious effort, but I promise that it, it, it takes it, it's not an insurmountable task. Of ba like again, the example of my of my of from my real life is about a year ago. 
I was like looking through my Audible library and I realized exactly how few authors of color I had actually read at any point in my life. And so I just started I just started looking up lists of horror of like horror authors and fantasy authors and authors of other genres that I like that are that are black, that are Hispanic, that are Native American. And I just started diversifying my library. And honestly, obviously, the the work is much more intricate than that. And there is a lot more internal unlearning that you have to do to kind of start breaking out of a white supremacist mindset. But the so much can be done by just realizing how many white voices you have surrounded yourself with and attempting to diversify that. And like you can, it's like, it's the same thing with like, are you, it's like, if you realize you are watching TV shows that between all of them have three black characters, maybe it's time to start seeking out TV shows that have all black casts or if you realize that every horror movie you watch is just about white people, maybe it's time to start checking out Jordan Peele and a few other directors. And I think how do we make room for voices of color and occultism just comes down to you make room for them. You you almost have to. And I know that this is anxiety inducing for a lot of people. And I know that it sucks that we are being asked to undo systems we did not build and mm-hmm. never consciously chose to profit off of. But to a certain extent, we we do have to check ourselves so other people don't have to do it for us. Yeah. And well, and it's also, if not us, who? Yeah, like it, exactly. It, it's going to keep going until it gets stopped and it won't stop until everyone does, until everyone is working towards that goal. Yeah. And to that point, and you know, you you bring up an interesting one, and I think maybe we need to do a better job on the show of diversifying the people that we that we read from, because I don't know that we've covered a black or a, a, a person of color's book on the show yet. Uh, uh, I think- Alex is half half Japanese. That's true, Alex Matsuo. I I don't know, but uh, yeah, honestly, that that is something that we that we could do of like start or like even just. Like seeking out biographies on Marie Laveau or yeah. like seeing if we well, can should be really interested in reading that. Yeah. And like some of the like some of the ones we just talked about in this chapter, like uh maybe not some of their actual books, because they're probably uh written in language that's so old and dense we probably wouldn't be able to do a great job with it, but biographies on. Biographies on or like there's probably contemporary occultists of color who have done updates to a lot of these books it's just that that was another thing that i wanted to like to bring up about did we not hear these names just because we're white people and the sad truth is even modern occultists of color probably haven't heard a decent amount of these names just because it's so hard to find them yeah that's true and white voices dominate so much of this that if you don't have the amount of time and the amount of resources that the three of us have to go hunting for these more obscure things or like I have a leg up just because my undergrad was in theology 
And part of that involved studying studying African-American uh, religion. Mm-hmm. So I, I had a passing... I still only had a passing familiarity with some of these names. Like, I know I know the name Marcus Garvey. Before rereading this chapter, I couldn't tell you who he was with a gun to my head. That had just completely gone out of it. Yeah. And so, yeah, it, it wouldn't surprise me as if even people of color in these communities hadn't heard a lot of these names because how were they supposed to? Yeah, that's a good point. All right. Ready to go on to section four? Yep, I'm ready. All right. Starting section four off, we will begin by talking about Manly P. Hall. Hall was a self-taught man who spent his days in the New York Public Library doggedly reading esoteric lore, books on Kabbalah, Hellenic mythology, Pythagorean mathematics, papyrus texts, and more. His mission? To save the ancient teachings from obscurity in a world he thought was going ethically illiterate. His book, The Secret Teaching of All Ages, that has a much longer title, wrote this exploration of a vast assortment of ancient esoteric ideas, complete with diagrams, illustrations, and other images was a hit in esoteric circles and is now a watershed work in all esoteric study. Can I read the full title? Yeah, sure. The full title is no less than An Encyclopedia Outline of Masonic, Hermetic, Kabbalistic, and Rosicrucian Symbolic Philosophy being an interpretation of the secret teachings concealed within the rituals, allegories, and mysteries of the ages. And I, I, I just love it. I just, I just love it. I, I feel like it's a title you have to scream. Sure. At a young age, he was disturbed by the increasing commercialization of enlightenment and detested mainstream theological academia, which he believed treated esoteric topics as museum pieces rather than living philosophies with real applications to modern life. Furthermore, academia seemed overly interested in sterilizing ancient thought and reinterpreting it through a strictly materialistic paradigm. The Secret Teachings of All Ages came about as his response to the spiritual bankruptcy he saw in the world. He sought to create a bridge between ancient wisdom and modern reality. And everyone and their cousin wanted this book. Even Elvis Presley, a generation later, counted a signed copy as one of his prized possessions. The Masons, however, were the biggest customers, who began keeping a copy in every lodge. And maybe that is what influenced Hall to eventually join in 1954. With the success of his book, he opened the Philosophical Research Center. He modeled the PRC after the mystery schools of old. Hall led classes, wrote, researched, and otherwise spent his years fully immersed in the esoteric. And Hall died in August of 1990, and after, the PRC campus became a topic of intense legal battles that resulted in $2 million in legal fees almost bankrupting them. All because six days before his death, a con artist convinced Hall to make him his trustee, a decision that would later be overturned in court when it came to light that, well, he was running a con. The organization did regain financial stability in 1993 and does continue to this day. Now, the next occult-ish figure that we will discuss is Henry Wallace. Wallace comes to the spotlight in 1940 when Franklin Roosevelt chose him to be the next vice president. The DNC hated this, saying that he was too weird and that he was a mystic, in which Roosevelt said, he's not a mystic, he's a philosopher, he's got ideas, he thinks right, and he'll help people think right. He was a mystic. 
He was most certainly a mystic, but he was the other things too. Yeah, no, for sure. And Wallace did have ideas. He helped save American agriculture during the Great Depression by pushing for major innovations such as high-yield seeds, soil conservation, planting rotations, and restrictions on overproduction. He is credited with saving thousands of family farms. Wallace did, however, consider himself a practical mystic and was often baffled when others refused to take his esoteric interests seriously. He dabbled in many different faiths and practices, from attending the Des Moines Theosophical Lodge to attending the Liberal Catholic Church, which is a theosophical movement which sought to provide an alternative to the Catholic and Angelic churches. He joined the Freemasons, achieving all but their highest rank, and he studied astrology intensely to determine if it could be used to help farmers know when and how to plant crops. In 1933, Wallace started palling around with a Russian artist and mystical philosopher named Nicholas Rorick. Rorick had an idea to establish a worldwide treaty to protect historical heritage sites and artifacts during wars, an idea which did attract modest support, namely from then-Governor Franklin D. Roosevelt. However, Rorick also brought out the greatest weakness that Wallace had, a weakness for the cloak-and-dagger style of mysticism and secrecy popular in European occultism. He soon came to see Rorick, who styled himself in robes and draping beards like a Hollywood sorcerer, as his guru. Rorick bestowed on him the magical working name of Galahad, which Wallace would sign all letters to his guru with. Wallace did eventually break with Rorick in 1935, due in part to how uncomfortable his own weirdness and theosophical learnings made his peers at the White House. Unfortunately for Wallace, the DNC really, really hated him. So, he was eventually replaced by Truman as the vice presidential candidate and given the position of Secretary of Commerce, which, when Roosevelt died and Truman took over, he was removed from immediately. Now, after his time in the cabinet, Wallace was painted as a foolish mystic. His new progressive party came under fire when it was clear just how many of their staffers were members of the Communist Party of the USA, a fact that was an open secret, yet one that Wallace had somehow missed. They're communists? I thought those hammer and sickle tattoos were just a fad. <laughs> he seems so kind-hearted, but also just so... Clueless. Wait, weirdly, I kept getting Jimmy Carter vibes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like, I kept expecting him to go back to a peanut farm. <laughs> a magic peanut farm where it's tended by homunculi. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that would be incredible. Now, after Wallace's failed bid to run for president, he traveled the world, keeping in touch with many of the world leaders along the way. And when looking back at his spiritual explorations, he said, quote, Karma means that while things may not balance out in a given lifetime, they balance out in the long run in terms of justice between individuals, between man and the whole. It seemed to me that one of the most profound of all religious concepts, to that extent, I'm everlastingly grateful to the theosophists. Now, Wallace's career was mirrored in that of another political operator, one with less utopian ideas of how the occult and politics may intersect. This man was an admirer of Hitler, the model for the neo-Nazis of later decades, an anti-Semitic icon, and a popular author who claimed to receive wisdom from spiritual mentors in a hyperdimensional space. This man is William Dudley Pelly. 
dusty old hoe. That's my feelings towards him. Just a big wet fart. All accurate feelings. I, I, it is fun to know that there is actually someone. If like, if you could go back in time and kill someone, that that there is actually one person where if you went back and did it, you might actually head off this whole neo-Nazi thing entirely. Yeah, no, you're not wrong. Now, prior to his rise in fringe politics in the 1930s, he was a well-regarded journalist and short story writer. He won the O. Henry Award for short fiction twice. In 1929, he published a hugely popular article in the American magazine titled Seven Minutes in Eternity, The Amazing Experience That Made Me Over. This details an experience he had while dozing on a quiet spring night. He realized that he was dying and felt himself tumbling from his body when someone suddenly reached out and stopped what felt like a freefall. They were two young, kind-faced men wearing white uniforms. They laid him naked atop a marble slab and began reassuringly massaging his body and calming him. Now, if that was just his gay awakening, we will never know, because he dubbed them his sexual, oh, I'm sorry, spiritual mentors. <laughs> now, he claimed that these entities came to him many times over the ensuring years and taught him much about karma, reincarnation, and the afterlife. Now, naturally, this article, The Seven Minutes in Eternity, reached millions and became one of the most widely read paranormal accounts in American history. Hmm. What if I took things that a bunch of people in the subcontinent of India came up with thousands of years ago, and I shit all over it? What if I did that? Well, then I'd be Pelly. In retrospect, the fact that one of the most popular occult texts in American history was written by a white supremacist might go a ways to explaining uh, why we haven't heard of those black occultists. Yeah, you're not wrong again. Now, he claimed that this experience remade him into a more peaceful, loving person. His nerves were calmed, and he stopped smoking. Well, that was until the mentors conveniently told him that smoking was great and would help free his subconscious. What? But something between this initial encounter and the rise of fascism fundamentally broke in this man because, quote, by 1933, acting under Clairaudian instruction from his cosmic mentors, Peely started the Silver Shirts, a paramilitary neo-Nazi order that served as a template for some of the worst hate groups of the 20th century. And he received several more messages from his mentors that conveniently pushed his new hate of unfriendly bankers and the swarming millions of Asia. Pelly claimed that something clicked in his brain and that he then leapt into action. He turned his mailing list for his magazine and metaphysical correspondence course into a center for racist Nazi ideologies, and thus was founded the Silver Legion of America. This order he believed would play a role in the apocalyptic battle between Aryan mankind and the evil Jews. His legion gained most of its members on the West Coast, where they engaged sporadically in paramilitary training. They also set up pro-Hitler rallies and helped run Paley's failed bid for the presidency. By the mid-1930s, they'd reached their peak membership with 15,000 members and a subscriber list of over 50,000. He repeatedly attacked the Roosevelt administration for their support of England, calling Roosevelt a puppet of the Jewish elite and even writing a pamphlet titled Cripple Money, and wrote that the polio-stricken president was stealing money raised through the Warm Springs Foundation for crippled children and was a secret Jew. Roosevelt had had enough. 
World War II was starting and Pele was singing Hitler's praises in his publication. And after failing to get Pele once before, the war was used as the opportunity finally shut him down. In April, the FBI raided Pele's office and, by August, he was sentenced to 15 years in federal prison on 11 counts of sedition. Pele was made an example of to discourage any like-minded racist cults or paramilitary organizations. The warning shot worked, and soon, other notable assholes shut the hell up. (laughs) This is also considered part of the decline in the KKK's influence and total membership. Pele died in 1965 at a ripe age of 75, and as Nick put it, 74 years too late. Unfortunately, his brand of rhetoric and his Silver Legion served as the model for many more hate groups to come, including Elizabeth Clare Prophet's Cut Organization and Chicago's Mighty I Am movement. Now, in the modern day, it is common for historians to link fascism and the occult with a huge emphasis on Hitler's occult leanings. But just like anything good in the world, those that have evil in their heart will twist it to their own end. The Nazis co-opted occult ideas from the Norse pantheon into their brand of hatred, and even the use of the swastika was taken from theosophy, which took it from the older Hindu faiths, its meaning being twisted away from the original meaning of rebirth in the karmic cycle. And at the same time, some German occultists also seized on Blavatsky's writings of the Aryan race, a term Blavatsky took from Vedic literature and was meant to describe the earliest Indian people. This was an attractive idea to Germans who sought to divorce their own heritage from any Semitic or Mediterranean roots. Rather, they could pretend that they came from some superior proto-race of white people from India. And while these occult ideas were used by Hitler, the author, Mitch Horowitz, wants to make it clear that Hitler was not an occultist. In fact, in Mein Kampf, he directly condemned mystically inclined intellectuals who might belong to occult nationalist groups. He wanted no mysticism or any modern applications of it in his new Germany. I really don't like that Pelly guy. No, me neither. And with that, we're going to go into our fourth discussion question. So, we went over the weird but kind-hearted Wallace and the evil and sadistic Pelle, both of whom had an influence on the occult and how it intersects with politics, both good and I guess argue I, I guess I guess at the end of the day both kind of negative. So how do you think that this influence carries over to the modern day? Do you think that the world is more open to the occult within politics now, or is it the same? And then finally, do you think that the occult and politics should even mingle? Uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna say something that's probably not gonna be super popular with our listeners. I don't think the occult belongs in political decisions or any decision that you're making that is going to affect hundreds to millions of other people's lives. If for no other reason than remember all that stuff Jenny Tyson taught us about shadows and how you can have information that seems like it's coming from a divine source, but really it's just being a racist. Um, Yeah, like I... <sighs> Like, to be blunt, I I don't think we should be letting, uh, I don't think we should be letting justices, like, and judges consult a Ouija board before they make decisions on cases, which is a thing that happened in the Bible Belt. 
there was a guy on like a state appeals court who was consulting a Ouija boards mm-hmm. before he passed final judgment. Yep. And I'm sorry, he he should have been disbarred. That's not I. <sighs> Like I, I and I say that not because I'm shitting on occultism. I don't think people should be letting any form of spirituality or religion be making their political decisions for them. Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. Boom. First line of the Constitution. Yep. Yeah, I think I agree with you. Um. I think honestly, my the reason I agree with you is largely because of how I view occultism in general. Um, what works for one person will not work for another person. For example, uh, both of you do things in your personal practices that I know d- just wouldn't work for me in a million years. I mean, I I don't even really know what works for me yet, but I know that what you guys are doing isn't what's going to get me where I want to go. And that's totally fair. Yeah, and but that's the thing, is that I think ultimately, going back to its roots, occultism is about the inward journey. It's about changing your inward circumstance and kind of coming to a better understanding of yourself and the universe and connection with the universe and all that cosmic goodness we talk about. And that path uh, goes in many directions, and it's it, it's not meant to be an A to B to C journey. And when you start taking, well, this is what works for me, and now I'm going to make it into policy. What you're doing is saying, no, my path is the only one that that is moral and ethical and has any value. And uh, to me, that is completely bankrupt. It, it is a complete misunderstanding of what. I guess the occult uh, has represented to our species for at least the last several uh, hundred or thousand years. Mm-hmm. Uh, regarding Pelly and Wallace specifically, you know, I I think if if I you know I obviously our elected officials are going to have religious beliefs, they're going to have occult beliefs. I have no issue with that, uh, and I I also don't have an issue with Wallace maybe even using that to guide what he thinks would be better about the world. Um, my issue there, though, is when, I, I guess, when it goes from being one person is allowing their beliefs to influence what they advocate for to uh, this religious belief is now part of a party platform. Yes. Yeah. And I yeah. think that's the difference. It Wallace, it was entirely internal. It was yeah. his beliefs and he never seemed to try to project those and force other people to believe that no in fact he was just baffled that people didn't take him seriously yeah whereas um pelly uh started a murder cult yeah and so like <laughs> and it's that, that that that's the difference and also again it comes back to i mean which the very what i believe is a very american idea which is that uh you know my rights end where yours begin I have the right to live my life. I have the right to believe what I want to believe, love who I want to love, uh, do what I want to do as long as I'm not infringing on other people's right to do the same thing. And that that's, I, I guess, the in my mind, is the ultimate schism in American politics between those who seem who believe that personal beliefs are personal and those that believe personal beliefs are rules. Yeah. Yeah. No, you're, you're 100% spot on there. And you know what's funny? I, I thought this was going to be a, like a, a bit of a trap question because and I and I even thought of a, 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 a like a, a good point because I wasn't sure if you guys were going to be on the same page as me because I strongly agree that that the occult and politics should not mingle for those exact same reasons. I, I agree that 
what I believe on an individual level shouldn't have any sway over how we govern uh, our country because we govern for many, 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 many people. And the reason why I thought it might be a trap question is because these are positive ideologies. They're all positive thinking, you know, and it's like, yeah, sure, go ahead, make it, let it mingle because it could only benefit us, right? But that would make us hypocrites. Well, yeah. also you go back to, uh, look at what happened to New Thought. Any good idea on a long enough timeline can be turned into a tool of oppression. Right, but what I was saying is what why it would make us hypocrites is because we, I, at least I know I constantly say that Christianity and politics should not mingle, that, that Christianity has no place in our politics. And if I agreed that my personal occult ideology then should be part of the political sphere, I would be a hypocrite. And I don't think that. Right. You know, and I, that, that was something that I, and I was very curious to see your guys' response. So I'm actually very happy that you guys are on the same page as me there. Well, like, for example, uh, you know, Rory, you're into Druidism. Druidry. Druidry, that's the actual, okay, you're into Druidry. Well, if you were, let's say you got a job at the State Department. Now, if you were because of your your druidic beliefs in in uh the, you know the the necessity of nature and the power of it, it, it that motivates you to fight harder to preserve our national forests and be more ecologically minded in the decisions you make. That to me is fine. But when you're saying, "Well, I'm going to lead a team of and I want to make sure it's a team of only druids and we're going to push druidry on the other departments. And if anyone isn't a druid, well, we're going to tar and feather them and bit by bit bully them out of out of the public view. There's the line. It's a very clear line. Don't cross it. No, that you're exactly you're exactly right. And it's there's a like you're elected officials. So if you are a Christian or a druid or a Buddhist and you were elected in, then the, the people who elected you understood that you're going to make decisions based off of your, like, that you're going to be guided at least by your, your personal faith, right? That's fine. I acknowledge that. I accept that. I'm fine with that. But there's a difference between being guided and, and letting and voting on the, uh, based on your beliefs, which is, yay, more power to you, and then forcing your beliefs upon other people and upon the government, uh, upon the, the country, for example. Uh, we're seeing it happening literally right now in our country with Roe v. Wade being overturned. You know, I know we're not a political podcast, but unfortunately, when we're talking about uh, a cult in America, we can't. No, on this episode, we are. Yeah. We, like yeah. this we, episode specifically, there's no getting away from it. Yeah. Uh, that's what I was going to say. There's just no way to not talk about these things. So I'm going to address it. Uh, so with Roe v. Wade being overturned, that decision was made by the courts based on misinterpreted uh, ideas that we are a Christian nation when we are not. It is said repeatedly throughout the the Constitution and the founding fathers have there's a there's a fucking I have a fucking laundry list of quotes in my phone that I have at the ready to throw at people from our founding fathers where they repeatedly say that we're not a Christian nation. But ultimately, it comes down to that one line that I read when you were talking, Jay, is that that's it. We don't make any laws that, that would you know respect one religion over the other, and yet here we are doing just that. And that's where I draw the line, because you're saying that your Christian beliefs are more morally sound 
than my non-Christian beliefs, and that is fundamentally against everything that America st- stands for. Yeah, in my opinion. No, I I agree. I uh, again, I go back to I think my my overarching philosophy is the is you know rights end where the other person's begins. Yeah. Um, and I mean, let me make one thing clear about that. What that does mean is that, uh, for example, let's say somebody wants to go running around dropping racial slurs or they want to uh, go and drop a homophobic slurs and they want to and they want to be a bully about it. Unfortunately, I believe they, they have that right. The difference is they don't have uh, they they're not entitled to be liked for it. And, and, and that's the thing is that people when people get mean, you know, tarring and feathering them out of society, that's just what we do. That's what we've always done as a society. And so, yes, they might have the right to say that, but that doesn't give them that gives them the right to be protected from the consequences of saying it. And also, just for the record, uh, freedom of speech does not protect uh, hate words. It does not protect anything that would incite violence. It doesn't protect using racial slurs and things like that. So what you do in your own home is fine. But if you do it in public, you are not protected by the freedom of speech. So when I beat your ass, you deserved it. And uh, you're not protected by the freedom of speech to say those things. So. If yeah. I if I yell fire in a movie theater when there's no fire, I have to pay a fine. Yep. <laughs> so and that's something that a lot of people get misconstrued. They think that because they're because the freedom of speech that they can just drop the N-word whenever they want. You cannot. Uh you are not allowed to say that. In fact, they the the founding fathers addressed that specifically and they said that if anything would cause a fight, it's called fighting words. If anything would entice a fight or cause any kind of violence, that is not protected by the freedom of speech. Sorry, I've read the Constitution way too many times. No, I understand. Thank mm-hmm. God someone in this room has. I did. A long, long time ago. I never read that shit. Civics class. I, I was... handed you a mini copy. And I was assigned female at birth, and I was like, this doesn't apply to me and never will. That's not true. It does, and we're working to keep it that way. But they are actively trying to make that go away. But let's not beat this dead horse any longer. Before we spiral into a conversation even deeper about the po- about politics, we have one more section to get to. It's not very long. Let's do it. Let's talk about quote the greatest mystic who ever lived in America. <gasps> Edgar Case was born in 1877 in Beverly, Kentucky. This was a highly racist and segregated area. He was a sensitive and awkward kid that was too tall for his age and prone to spending long hours alone wandering the meadow or forest, where he reportedly had visits from fairy-like friends and deceased relatives, which makes me think of aliens. At age nine, he was fascinated with scripture, and after begging his father to buy them a Bible, he would read it once every year, like a good Christian. At age 13, he prayed to God for the ability to help others, quote, Just before going to sleep, he recalled in his memories a glorious light filled the room and a feminine apparition appeared at the foot of his bed, telling him, Thy prayers are heard. You will have your wish. Remain faithful. Be true to yourself. Help the sick, the afflicted. And one day, while stricken with laryngitis in 1901, he discovered his trance abilities. He slipped into a hypnotic state in which he diagnosed his own illness. From there, he began working to provide the same to everyone he could and did so in thousands of the 14,000 trance readings that he did in his lifetime. One September, Case was approached by a wealthy printer from Dayton, Ohio. 
His name was Arthur Lammers. Lammers was a longtime student of the occult and esoteric. Quote, the businessman occultist insisted that the seer could use his powers for more than medical diagnosis. He wanted Case to probe the secrets of the ages. What happens after death? Is there a soul? Why are we here? Moreover, Lammers wanted to understand the mysteries of the pyramids, astrology, alchemy, the etheric world, reincarnation, and the esoteric religions of ancient Egypt and Greece. In Case saw ideas like reincarnation and astrology as close to heresy, given his Bible-centric upbringing. But Case, ever the good American, was ambitious and was eventually enticed to take Lammers up on his offer. And so the two began their work in October of 1923. Case would enter a trance and was asked to provide an astrological reading, something he had never done before. Yet, he immediately began speaking at length on the topic. He also affirmed the basic value of art, spoke of the source, and the fact that this was Lammers' third incarnation on Earth, one of his previous lives being that of a monk. They continued the readings for over a month, probing esoteric questions, and during a trance on October 18th, Case laid out an entire philosophy for life which included reincarnation, man's place in the universe, and the purpose of existence. Quote, In this we see the plan of development of those individuals set upon this plane, meaning the ability, as would be manifested from the physical, to enter again into the presence of the Creator and become a full part of that creation. Insofar as this entity is concerned, this is the third appearance on this plane, and before this one as the monk. We see glimpses in this life of the entity now, as were shown in the monk, in his mode of living. The body is only the vehicle ever of that spirit and soul that wafted through all times and ever remained the same. Lamars believed that this was the true meaning of being born again, and to enter the kingdom of heaven that we reincarnate in cycles until we can become truly one with God. Thankfully, he noted that his interpretation of the world seemed consistent with many, many ancient mystery cults and religions. And in 1925, a new donor helped Case and family move to Virginia Beach, a town that was selected via a psychic reading. There, he raised enough money to finally realize a dream of building a hospital built on his cures. The Hospital of Enlightenment opened in 1929 with 30 beds and a prime view of the Atlantic. Here, patients could receive both modern medicine and Case's own psychic-led homeopathic remedies. Case delivered weekly metaphysical lectures every Sunday and was among the first ever to prescribe meditation as a means of correcting or subduing psychological and emotional symptoms. Unfortunately, his timing was less than ideal and two years later they were forced to close as the Great Depression hit. Still a human and in need of money, he returned to doing $20 readings, which soon came to include membership in Case's Association for Research and Enlightenment, ARE. Though records show his kindly heart led him to reducing or waiving payments due to the extreme poverty of the time. Though Case is not without his faults, once, for example, under a trance, he said that black people didn't have souls. Now, was this just a product of where he grew up? Maybe. But we must still remember that even seemingly good people have their faults. Quote, As practiced by Case, esoteric teachings existed to bring respite, to create a channel, as he put it, for good into the world. 
This prophet of the new age introduced hope and dignity into lives and places where conventional messages and messengers had failed to reach. And this, in the end, was the highest legacy of occult America. The book concludes with a snapshot into what has brought us into the modern age, from technological advancements of the 1950s cooling the interests in the esoteric and moved the interests out into the skies above us. With World War II, fighters came home with stories of UFOs following their aircraft, which defied known physics. And around this time, beginning with Kenneth Arnold, the UFO craze swept the nation. Meanwhile, in the 1940s, a growing subculture emerged centered on reports of Inner Earth and its alien inhabitants. Brought on by a series of true stories, or supposedly true stories, that ran in the pulp monthly Amazing Stories. Soon the people wanted science fiction stories of aliens and spaceships, not stories of the paranormal or spiritual experiences. Quote, As the 1950s wore on, the occult could seem like something of a spent force in American life. Foes of spiritualism had exposed one mediumistic fraud after another. Theosophy with an aging membership and no more communiques from the masters had begun to seem like a frumpy lecture society. The Reverend Norman Vincent Peale had retooled the mesmeric and new thought-based practices of positive thinking into mild motivational fare and the most vibrant personalities of the American occult, from Baird T. Spaulding to Edgar Case, had passed on the Summerland. The 60s also brought a wide range of foreign religions to American shores. Wicca, and by relation neo-paganism, became one of the fastest-growing spiritual movements in American history, and was quickly recognized as a religion by the U.S. Armed Forces. Meanwhile, Maharishi Mihesh Yogi came to California from India in 1959 and began teaching his method of transcendental meditation. He hosted the Beatles and other such youth icons at his India ashram, and in doing so became America's iconic image of the foreign spiritual guru. And this we did cover on Season of the Witch. Yep, I remember this guy. In 1969, a book by astrologer and Miss America contestant Linda Goodman became the first astrology book to hit the New York Times bestseller list. It was titled Sun Signs and popularized the, quote, what's your sign phrase. Soon, even non-believers knew their own astrological signs and knew something about its reported traits. Sign-based horoscopes were published in newspapers across the country. And also at this time, foreign religious texts such as the I Ching and other books on Sufism and Zen were translated to English for the first time. Quote, in the mid-70s, the monthly New Age Journal had solidified the name for this new spiritual movement. There was no longer any easily discerned occult or Eastern or yogic subculture. Rather, America experienced the rise of a vast metaphysical culture that appeared ever-expanding, ever-accommodating, and perpetually ready to adapt to any foreign or homegrown influence that met the needs of those who yearned for self-discovery or personal fulfillment. A core belief of this New Age movement was that there is convergence in all religions and therapeutic systems, resulting in an era of boundless human potential. Quote, There also existed serious esoteric teachers who stood aloof from the New Age, carefully absorbing some of the searchers who had sampled and gotten dissatisfied with its plethora of offerings. Spiritual movements that did not lend themselves to popular adaptations, from Islamic Sufism to esoteric Christianity, benefited by the New Age's reach and took in some of the most thoughtful participants. 
All the while, mainstream religious movements fought bitterly to try and crush the New Age. Megachurches and evangelicals rallied against it, while in the same hand adopting many of the counseling and therapeutic methods and thought lines that made the New Age popular, while also throwing in a heaping helping of materialism and prosperity gospel. Boo. Now, while some saw the New Age as a confused jumble of conflicting beliefs, the truth is that the movement did have a core set of ideals that remained consistent across almost all sects. Those being, number one, belief in the therapeutic value of spiritual or religious ideas. Number two, belief in the mind-body connection and health. Three, belief that human consciousness is evolving to higher stages. Four, belief that thoughts, in some greater or lesser measure, determine reality. And five, belief that spiritual understanding is available without allegiance to a specific religion or doctrine. Sound familiar? And with that, we'll go into our final discussion question. Yay! Now, we talk all the time about the connections between the paranormal and the occult. And this book, if nothing else, show those similarities even more, and we probably don't need to harp on them any more than we do in every other episode. So, assuming that things like UFOs, aliens, the paranormal, and all of these things that we talk about are part of the next stages of American occultism— I want to ask this. Who out there, right now, do you think is or will be the next figures to push American occultism to the next stages of its evolution, and why? To be completely honest, I mean, looking, let's look at history. So Edgar Cayce, um, going back all the way to Andrew Jackson Davis, going down to uh, Waddles, going down to uh, Ernest Holmes, going down to Frank B. Robinson— we had all these people. What? Where did they come from? They were self-taught. They were poor, and they were working in the shadows until suddenly they emerged. Yeah, and you know what's funny is literally every single one of them that I talked about in here was self-taught and undereducated. Yep. So I'm not saying that the next person who's going to reinvent American occultism has to come from those roots, but I do believe that they're going to come from nowhere. Like mm. it's nothing. No one we know. It, because especially because we're talking about things like UFOs and paranormality. I mean, assuming those things are real in a way that can be proven, uh, which I'm not fully convinced of yet, uh, but assuming they're real in a way that can be physically proven with our science, we're still at the point where we're not even sure they're real. We have to get much further down the road till we can start integrating those concepts into occult philosophies that become these undercurrent social and cultural trends. Yeah, but there are people out there that are trying to do that right now is, is kind of the point that, I, that I'm getting at. I mean, yeah, sure there are. I don't, I don't think, uh, again, I don't think any of them are going to, maybe some of them will help lead to the, to the person who's going to be able to finally integrate all of that into occultism. I don't think we're there yet because I don't think we can until we understand what we're dealing with. But by its true nature, we'll never understand. Okay, so yeah. Fair. So, like, if UFOs and everything have a consciousness connection. Sure. Okay, which is something that we talk about all the time. Mm-hmm. It's essentially all of everything that we've talked about today in terms of uh, occultism, all, come, all of it comes back to, or not all of it, but the vast majority of it come back to the idea that regardless of faith, religion, 
way, whatever, that these core ideas, the five that I just rattled off uh, as an example, all are like this focal point for any kind of new age idea. If UFOs, ghosts, paranormality in general is the new American focal point for this, like New Thought was and still is to some extent, but is dying. My the the question, I guess, was who out there right now is helping push that narrative forward? I mean, really, the answer there is that uh, the the future of American occultism is rests in, I mean, sadly, the abandonment, at least right now, of the occult trappings in favor of a scientific one, specifically through uh, spooky physics, through quantum physics, because we're getting it, we're, we're starting to get to this point with consciousness where if consciousness is primary and it sits at the root of all these instances of par- not only paranormality, but all of reality. Um, well, then we're kind of going to get to the point where we're no longer theorizing about the why we're looking at the how. What do you think, Jay? Out of all of the people that are working in the field currently, the ones that I th- I'm trying to think of ones that are most likely to kind of become iconic for later generations of people doing exactly what we're doing now, I think the New Kirks have a pretty good shot just because of the sheer amount of reach that they have right now and the sheer number of eyes that they are able to have on them. I think they have the right mentality too. Yeah, yeah. No, absolutely. I can see that. Uh, so I could absolutely see the new Kirks. Um, I have a really horrible feeling that Teal Swan might end up having. Yeah, she's going to be the Pele or Pele or douchebag of the era. Yeah, I think I, I think she has the potential to cause some very long term problems. Uh, I I do wonder if we're going to see. Uh... Gary Nolan, uh, Dean, Ra- uh, Dean Radin, I believe is dead now, but still, if we're going to start seeing some of those people who are at the forward edge of psi research and things like that, kind of taking on that role, I guess, in a myth, almost in a mythological sense. I, I think some of those guys are going to be iconic. And on, honestly, I think Whitley Strieber has a pretty good shot of ending up in the same kind of echelons as as some of the as some of the guys that we talked about today just because communion has been so influential with the visitor phenomenon specifically that and again that's that's what i'm thinking about of the people who have already kind of established themselves as giants in this field and therefore have the best shot at an enduring legacy i i th- i think the newkirk streber and unfortunately teal swan are are probably up there in likely to become uh, future historical icons for this particular segment of thought. I think the New Kirks have potential. Their reach is, is large, but it's not as big as you might think it is. It, it's definitely big, but because we live inside that sphere, uh, at least I live inside that sphere, it, it definitely seems a lot bigger than it is. But they're also very disliked by a lot of the paranormal community. So... But I agree because I agree with their mentality and how they're looking at everything, that they have the potential to be uh, leaders in the field. Uh, However, I think the thing that will hold them back um, is their inability or their, 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 not inability, their distaste and not wanting to engage with 
anybody outside of their bubble. Yeah. And that's something that they're doubling down on. And that's fine. They are entitled to do that. And I will always engage with their content, but it's not going to push the narrative forward. And I think that's the one thing that's going to, that's really going to hold them back in that sense. Uh, Whitley Strieber, I, I think absolutely is going to be one. He's already an iconic figure in the field and he's pushing away from the science side of it and more towards the occult side of it, which is the part that, um, I think that I think Nick, you were a little bit hung up on here is I'm, I'm not talking about the science. Yeah, you know, that's fair. I, 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 and I understand why you want to bring it back because you're thinking in UFOs. I'm, I'm not thinking about UFOs in the nuts and bolts sense. And in, in fact, I've picked them up and thrown them out the window when I'm talking for this question, which is why, like, I agree, like Whitley Strieber and the person who I have in my mind who might lead or become one of these people because, but we won't know until we actually see what work he publishes is EXO. Yeah, I could see that. Um, well, and I, I think kind of to address your, what you said there regarding science, I mean, I am, uh, <laughs> I, I, what I think I'm trying to get at there is that I think that there is a chance that whatever is next, it is not going to be purely occult or purely scientific, but we're going to kind of get to a point where we're starting to drop those titles entirely. I don't think that will ever happen in our lifetime. Not in our lifetime. I think it will happen eventually. It hopefully will get to a point where we understand enough of the universe that it's not supernatural, it's not paranormal, it's just natural. It's our, it's, it's part of our understanding of the world. No, and and I agree, but we're I, I'm talking about modern day right now because this book talks about people that were alive 25 years ago, and I'm just saying, what's the next chapter? That's a, that. That yeah. was the only. That was the only part of the question. You were thinking way too far. Okay, then I'd probably say Lockman. I would agree with that as well. Yep. Yeah, I'd probably say Lockman right now. And, I, and we, granted, that's part of that is I am not. I am much more well versed on dead occultists than I am living ones. So take that with a grain of salt. There might be some people out there doing a lot of great work that I just simply don't know about. Now, I guarantee you there's a ton of people we don't know about. I'm not well-versed in the occult field. I'm only well-versed in the very small groups of people that I know. Uh, I'm trying to branch out, obviously. That's why the show exists. I wonder how well Biebergall is going to be remembered in 100 years. That, uh, If anything, it'll be about his lectures more than his books. Yeah. It's like I did, which I I hope I hope Biebergall has has a lasting impact on on American occultism the way a lot of these guys have. It's like I I really guys seriously go read Bieber, Peter Biebergall's books like, like seriously. Yeah, we're big fans. Yeah, if you didn't gather, but I think that about concludes the summary of uh, Occult America. So Nick, let's move into the about the author. All right. Mitch Horowitz is a widely known writer and speaker on the history and impact of alternative spirituality. In this, he's had enormous success and is often credited with returning the term New Age to respectable use in academic scholarship. Uh, he's worked as an editor for various New York publishing houses and is currently editor-in-chief at Tarcher Penguin, one of the largest publishers of spiritual and metaphysical literature in the world where he has published the works of people familiar to our show, such as Whitley Strieber and Jacques Vallée. He's a writer-in-residence at the New York Public Library and a lecturer-in-residence at the Philosophical Research Society in L.A. 
Uh, he has also frequently lectured at the Misotonic Institute of Horror Studies. He has written for a dizzying number of papers and imprints, including the Washington Post, U.S. News, Parabola, Boing Boing, Esopus, Fortean Times, Venture Inwards, New Dawn, Atlantis Rising, Sub Rosa, Science of Mind, and the Religious News Service. He has appeared speaking on the occult and the paranormal on programs such as CBS Sunday Morning, Dateline NBC, All Things Considered, The History Channel, The Montel Williams Show, Coast to Coast AM, and AMC Shudder's Cursed Film Series. Occult America is his first book, and since then he has published a ton more. I'm just going to run through these pretty quick. Uncertain Places, which is a collection of essays examining misunderstood elements from about various esoteric sects and topics. One Simple Idea, which is an exploration of new thought in the power of positive thinking and the impact it had on the cultural landscape of American spirituality. The Miracle Club, which is a, a sort of a spiritual self-help book, it is a guide to creating miracles in your own life through the power of thoughts. The Miracle Habits, a self-help book further exploring the strengths and pitfalls of mind power and ways in which it can help and hinder us. The Miracle Month, a sequel to the previous Miracle books, furthering his theme of spiritual self-help. The Seeker's Guide to the Secret Teachings of All Ages, a fully authorized companion text exploring the book by Manley P. Hall. Secrets of Self-Mastery, a book highlighting methods to increase one's charisma, business acumen, attract money, and further explorations of mind power. Magician of the Beautiful, an exploration of the life of Neville Goddard, a metaphysical thinker who posited the idea that imagination is God. Cosmic Habit Force, How to Discover and Use Nature's Superpower, a practical spiritual guide to bringing oneself in alignment with the natural forces of life to increase one's success and happiness. And finally, Daydream Believer, his latest foray into the topic of mind power. Daydream Believer was just released on June 26th and will be among the topics we'll be discussing on the next edition of Midnight Chats. He also hosted and produced a documentary about the occult classic, The Kybelian, which was the number three top documentary on iTunes in 2022. Uh, for those who don't know, The Kybelian was a hermetic text first published in 1908, which claims to convey the secret teachings of Hermes Trismegistus. Neat. He also appeared in the documentary by another uh, author we know here, Kier La Genese, uh, Woodland's Darkened Days Bewitched, A History of Folk Horror, and a documentary on Anton LaVey titled Into the Devil's Den. He's also appeared as himself on a load of TV docuseries, including America's Book of Secrets, Greatest Mysteries, Mysteries at the Monument, Mysteries at the Museum, Ancient Aliens, Cursed Films, and The Unexplained. As a rare accolade, the Chinese government has included his work on their list of banned or censored media, <laughs> and he lives in New York with his wife and two sons. And that's what we got. All right. Well, then I think that brings us to housekeeping. Housekeeping. Yeah. Good book. Go read it. Let's yep. do housekeeping. Yeah. All right. Uh, so if you liked what you heard, please like and subscribe on whatever podcasting platform that you are listening on. And if it's Apple or Spotify, please. Please give us a review at this point. I don't give a shit if it's five stars, but we'd prefer it. You know, give us a review. Give us feedback because that way, you know, we can make the show better for you. And if you do have any book requests like this one, this episode, go ahead and shoot us an email, noctificantpodcast at gmail.com, and then we'll, we will consider whether or not we will do it. But might, I don't know. We'll have a conversation about it. 
And if you want to, you can follow us on social media. We have a Noctivian Twitter at Noctivian Pod, and I'm on Twitter as at Mix Rory Wicks. I'm at Bearish Terror. I'm at Midwest Undead. And then we have a plethora of other social medias, including a Instagram, Noctivian underscore podcast. A Reddit account, Noctivian Podcast. And a Tumblr account, Noctivian Podcast. It's almost like there's a theme. Yeah, something like that. I think, I think that's it. So what's next? Next up, we're going into cryptid territory, and we're finally going after Bigfoot. Ah, oh, it's about time. Yeah, we, we've gone too long into the show without touching Bigfoot. So we are going to be reading Where the Footprints End by Joshua Cutchin and Timothy Renner. Uh, it's, it's a book that seeks to do for Bigfoot what Passport to Magonia did for aliens, tying the Bigfoot story to uh, fo- older folklore that seems of a similar nature once you strip it down to its constituent parts. Mm. And it's, it's going to be fun. Yeah, I'm excited. I'm looking forward to diving in and not reading about the occult for a minute. Yeah, my brain hurts. Yeah, no, my brain definitely hurts. Uh, And next week, we are talking to the man himself. Mitch Horowitz. Mitch Horowitz. So that's exciting. You look forward to that on the next edition of Midnight Chats. But I think that's it. Yeah, I think that's it. So lead us out of here. Oh, right. That's me. So good night, ghosties. Good night, ghoulies. Good night, moth people. Stay safe out there. Don't. Don't be safe. Light fireworks off in your hand. This week on Noctivigant, I finally lose my shit and murder Nick live on the air. Finally. It's not live.